Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. McGraw-Hill Audio presents Crucial Confrontations. Tools for resolving broken promises, violated expectations, and bad behavior. Written by Carrie Patterson, Joseph Grenny, Ron McMillan, and Al Switzler. Narrated by Barrett Whitener. Introduction. What's a crucial confrontation? And who cares? When two Stanford researchers pulled up to a plywood mill in the foothills of northwestern Washington, they were surprised to see an ambulance parked out front. The harsh glare of the rotating warning lights set an ominous tone for the first day of what would become several months of research. The two experts were part of a team of investigators who were studying ways to handle missed commitments and failed promises at work, at home, and at play. For instance, how should you confront an employee who is chronically late, a colleague who badmouths you behind your back, or your teenage daughter who just announced that she's going to the senior prom with a boy you suspect is Satan's grandnephew? That day, the two researchers were beginning an exploration into the murky world of corporate accountability. First, they would examine how leaders typically handle missed commitments and violated expectations, then it would be their job to uncover and teach the best way to confront those problems. They would learn what to say to a burly forklift driver who violates a safety regulation, a boss who continually micromanages her direct reports, or a co-worker who is ragingly incompetent. As the researchers entered the manager's office, one nervously asked, What's with the ambulance? Imagine the manager's chagrin. Here were the two experts he had hired to create the plant's new supervisory training program, and the ambulance pulling away from the front gate was carrying an employee who had been beaten up by a supervisor. "'Funny you should ask,' he muttered. "'It seems that Leo, our night shift supervisor, and I'd like to point out that he's a prince of a guy. Anyway, Leo got into an argument with an employee who hadn't followed a quality process, and—' Well, you know how things go. Actually, I don't, the researcher answered. That's what we're here to study. As the blood drained from the manager's face, he continued. This whole situation is a bit embarrassing. It appears that Leo punched the fellow, and now he needs stitches. Let's look at another scenario. Sarah, the head nurse at the Pine Valley Medical Center, stands frozen as doctors discuss the treatment of an elderly patient. Years of experience have taught Sarah two things. One, the patient probably needed an immediate and large dose of antibiotics, and two, even though the doctors were discussing a treatment that didn't involve antibiotics, Sarah would keep her mouth shut. Years earlier, fresh out of college, Sarah had cheerfully disagreed with the three doctors she had been assisting. They stopped dead in their tracks and looked at her as if she were a cockroach on a wedding cake. Her colleagues stared in horror. In one poignant moment that was forever burned into her psyche, the rules had been made clear to Sarah. Don't disagree with a physician, ever. 
Now, nearly two decades and hundreds of confirming incidents later, she stands by, wondering, will the doctors do what I believe they should do, or will they come to the same conclusion too late? She doesn't wonder if she should speak up. Sarah's expectations weren't met, and she then resorted to silence. How do you handle problems? Although Leo and Sarah work in completely different jobs, they face the same issue. What do you do when other people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing? How do you deal with broken promises, violated expectations, and good old-fashioned bad behavior? In Leo's case, the infraction had been straightforward. A machine operator repeatedly failed to follow a routine quality process. Leo pointed out the problem, one word led to another, and now the guy was on his way to the hospital. Sarah's case was more ambiguous. Two physicians were about to do something not merely ineffective but flat-out wrong, or so she thought. She wasn't completely certain, but she was pretty certain, and if she was right, the patient might die. How should she confront the two physicians? And once she did, where could she find a new job? Leo and Sarah aren't alone in their turmoil. For instance, how would you typically handle the following? An employee speaks to you in an insulting tone that crosses the line between sarcasm and insubordination. Now what? Your boss just committed you to a deadline you know you can't meet, and not so subtly hinted he doesn't want to hear complaints about it. Your son walks through the door sporting colorful new body art that raises your blood pressure by 40 points. An accountant wonders how to step up to a client who is violating the law. Family members fret over how to tell Granddad that he needs to live up to his promise of no longer driving his car. We all face crucial confrontations. We set clear expectations, but the other person doesn't live up to them. We feel disappointed. Lawyers call these incidents breaches of contract. At work, we're likely to dub them missed commitments, with a friend, broken promises, and with a teenage son, violations of common courtesy. Whatever the terminology, the question is the same. What do you do when someone disappoints you? Leo went for option one. He chose violence. Sarah opted for another alternative, silence. Surely there's a third option. Surely there's a method that falls somewhere between the stark polar worlds of fight and flight. Actually, that's precisely what this book is about. We examine better ways of dealing with failed promises, disappointments, and other performance gaps. We'll explore how to step up to and master crucial confrontations. But first, let's start with a definition. What we mean by crucial confrontations. When we use the word confrontation, we're using it in the following way. To confront means to hold someone accountable face to face. Although the term can sound abrasive, that's not what we have in mind. In fact, when confrontations are handled correctly, both parties talk openly and honestly. Both are candid and respectful, and as a result, problems are resolved, relationships benefit. To see how the authors learn to step up to failed promises and deal with them in a way that both solves the problem and solves relationships, let's go back to the plywood mill. As you may have guessed, the two researchers who walked into the mill are part of the team behind this book. 
what 25,000 people taught us about influence. After learning that Leo had beat up an employee, we asked the manager if we could spend time studying supervisors who were, how does one put it, less physically assertive. After all, it was our job to study the most competent leaders in the mill. We had been asked to fashion a leadership training course based on the practices of the best leaders, not the worst. When the plant manager walked us down to the supervisor's offices to introduce us to his top performers, we were amazed to learn that their highest-rated frontline supervisor was a 105-pound female engineer who was doing a short stint on the line. Nobody was better at holding employees accountable than Melissa was. She, along with a half-dozen other leaders, would make up our first study group. We selected them because of their ability to hold people accountable. They weren't soft and do that in a way that was respectful, unlike Leo. Actually, Melissa and her colleagues would be the first of over 25,000 people we would study across dozens of institutions for the next two decades. As it became clear to us that leaders aren't the only ones who wield influence, we expanded our research population to include all opinion leaders. Some were leaders and others were not, but all had been identified by their colleagues as the most powerful and effective people in their companies. We studied them not because they were the best communicators, the most popular employees, or the people with the fanciest titles. We studied them because they were the most influential people, and we wanted to learn what made them that way. For over 10,000 hours, we tagged along with Melissa and other opinion leaders as they faced their daily routines. We shuffled alongside them until they tired of us, and we eventually melted into the background. We watched as they conducted meetings. We sat by quietly as they celebrated successes. We took detailed notes as they held one another accountable. Melissa and her peers taught us the meaning of the word confront. They held others accountable, face-to-face -face and one-to-one, -one, often under trying circumstances. They were able to step up to problems and solve them quickly and this is what really set them apart, actually enhance relationships. After learning that the ability to hold others accountable lies at the very center of a person's ability to exert influence, we became fascinated with the ways opinion leaders handled volatile topics such as incompetence, insubordination, and racism. We really perked up when the person an opinion leader was about to confront was more powerful, say a supervisor going head-to-head -head with a vice president. And if the person who had broken a promise had a reputation for being defensive or even abusive, we once watched a technician confront a fellow who had been aptly nicknamed Vlad the Impaler, we couldn't wait to see what happened. These were the interactions we really wanted to watch. And watch we did. We watched a vice president confront a chief financial officer he believed was embezzling from the company. We looked in as a physician told her medical director that he was dangerously incompetent, so incompetent that other physicians scheduled risky surgeries for times when he wasn't on duty. We witnessed a middle manager confront a senior vice president for breaking the law and placing a multi-billion dollar contract at risk. What staggered us about all those conversations was not merely that they went well, but that when they were finished, the problem was resolved and the relationship enhanced. Of course, not every opinion leader succeeded all the time. We can't promise that the skills they taught us will make it so that you'll always get what you want or magically transform the people around you. 
What we have seen is that crucial confrontation skills offer the best chance to succeed regardless of the topic, person, or circumstances. Crucial Conversations in the Headlines At this point, you might conclude that this is a book about communication. After all, the focus will be on ways to talk to one another. But it's not about communication, it's about results, and crucial ones at that. To give you a feel for what we mean by crucial results, let's take a look at a few recent news items. When Being Polite Leads to Tragedy On the morning of January 13, 1982, a jumbo jet crashed into a bridge linking Washington to the state of Virginia. All but five of the 79 people on board died. What caused the tragedy? The official accident report suggested that the disaster was due to pilot error. The pilot had waited too long on the ground before taking off, allowing too much ice to build up on the wings. But upon further investigation, here was the cause behind the cause. As the pilot made preparation for takeoff, the co-pilot noticed that ice was building up on the engine and wings far too fast for his liking. He feared that it was becoming too dangerous even to consider taking off. But rather than come right out and say that he thought the pilot was being reckless or irresponsible, the co-pilot just dropped hints. See all those icicles on the back there and everything? Or, boy, it's a losing battle here trying to de-ice those things. It gives you a false sense of security. That's all that does. As the pilot continued his takeoff routine, now taxiing the plane down the runway, the co-pilot continued to raise concerns but again only obliquely. That doesn't seem right, does it? The co-pilot didn't want to come right out and confront the pilot or authority figure. He didn't want to step across the line. He didn't say, I don't think it's safe to take off. I think we're all about to die. He thought it, but he didn't say it. He felt it was better to be polite. So what was the real cause of the tragedy? The co-pilot didn't have a method for confronting the pilot in a way that he believed was both direct and respectful. To the co-pilot, it was unthinkable and tactless to confront the pilot. In short, he didn't know how to step up to a crucial confrontation and deal with it well. When People Don't Question Authority A middle-aged man checked into a medical clinic for a simple earache and walked out the puzzled owner of a brand-new vasectomy. How could this have happened? Hint, it wasn't a typographical error. Later, the doctor explained that the patient had been wide awake as medical professionals prepared him for the surgery. That included shaving him in a place that was a whole torso away from his infected ear. And yet he said nothing. I can't figure out why he didn't ask what was going on the doctor exclaimed. The man deferred to the doctors. He had learned not to question authority. When speaking your mind renders you powerless. This next example is painful to talk about. If you were watching on Tuesday, January 28, 1986, as the space shuttle Challenger broke into pieces, You'll never forget the feeling of absolute horror that overcame people around the world as seven American heroes disappeared into the Florida sky. How could this have happened, everybody wondered. 
How could some of the world's finest minds make such a horrific mistake? Eventually, investigators pointed to the O-rings as the culprit. Most of the talk stopped there. It all would have ended there if the O-ring problem had been discovered for the first time after the explosion. The sad truth was that months before the tragedy occurred, several engineers had expressed fears that the O-rings might malfunction if the temperature dropped low enough. But who had the guts to pass the information up the chain? Seventeen years later, when the space shuttle Columbia exploded, it wasn't due to the O-rings. Nevertheless, the failure had the same root cause. People were afraid to express their concerns openly. Why were people afraid to speak up? Investigators who studied the second shuttle disaster suggested that the environment at NASA had become so repressive that individuals who brought up safety issues weren't fired, but their job assignments were changed, people stopped listening to them, and they were rendered ineffective. How do you hold a crucial confrontation that, if not handled well, could ruin your career? Crucial Confrontations and Everyday Life Let's step back from the headlines and look at more typical scenarios. How does the inability to hold crucial confrontations affect the average family or organization? As it turns out, crucial confrontations lie at the root of all chronic family and organizational problems. Either people are facing failed promises and simply not dealing with them, or they're dealing with those problems poorly. Your plate is full. For instance, you've just been given a gigantic new assignment at work, even though your plate is already full. Your boss mentions nothing about shifting your priorities to accommodate the new workload. In fact, the unspoken message is, I don't care what it takes, make it happen. When you mention that the assignment appears unrealistic, your boss tells you to be a team player. Of course, not being a team player is the corporate version of committing treason. Who knows how to handle this crucial confrontation? I've changed my mind about children. Now for a home example. After five years of marriage, Charlie decides that it's time for his wife, Brandy, to give birth to their first child. When the two finalized their marriage plans, they agreed that they would never have children, but it seems that Charlie has changed his mind. He announces his updated plan to Brandy as if it were his decision alone. He delivers it as a command. Brandy feels completely blindsided. When she starts to raise her concerns, Charlie proclaims that their marriage is over if they don't have kids. End of argument. What do you say when your spouse threatens you over a topic of such grave importance? How do you have this crucial confrontation? The Problem in Summary Behind every national disaster, organizational failure, and family breakdown, you find the same root cause. People are staring into the face of a crucial confrontation, and they're not sure what to say. This part they do know. First, they need to talk face-to-face -face about an extremely important issue. Second, if they fail to resolve the issue, simple problems will grow into chronic problems. When they stare into the face of a possible disaster, some people are caught in an agonizing silence. Rather than speak directly and frankly about the problem at hand, they drop hints, change the subject, or withdraw from the interaction altogether. 
Fear drives them to various forms of silence, and their point of view is never heard except maybe in the form of gossip or rumor. Others break away from their tortured inaction only to slip into violence. Frightened at the thought of not being heard, they try to force their ideas on others. They cut people off, overstate arguments, attack ideas, employ harsh debating tactics, and eventually resort to insults and threats. Fear drives them to do violence to the discussion, and their ideas are often resisted. Joining the Ranks of the Effective All this can change. We've trained 200,000 people from Nairobi to New Jersey, and they've changed. They've learned the same skills that Melissa and the other opinion leaders we studied used to deal with some of the most challenging confrontations imaginable. You can learn the same skills, and if you do, you'll be able to step out of the shadows and deal with disappointments. Best of all, you'll learn to avoid slipping from awkward silence into embarrassing violence. In fact, when you learn to master crucial confrontations, you'll never have to give in to your fears and walk away from a problem again. That's the good news. Now for the bad news. If you can't step up to and master crucial confrontations, nothing will get better. Think about it. Has anyone ever solved performance problems by changing the performance review system, or any system for that matter? Not anyone we've met. For example, you've changed your policies, written up new guidelines, and taught classes on eliminating sexual harassment. Will interpersonal insensitivities disappear? Let's be clear on this point. It will be a skill set, not a policy, that will enable people to solve their pressing problems. This applies to quality violations, safety infractions, cost-cutting mistakes, medical errors, recalcitrant teenagers, and withdrawn loved ones. Don't count on new ground rules or new systems or new policies to propel the changes you want. Not by themselves, at least. You have to combine them with a skill set. For instance, a well-known manufacturing company recently invested tens of millions of dollars in first studying and then copying a competitor's revolutionary production system. If you can't beat them, join them. Naturally, for the changes to work, the employees had to use the new methods and then step up to co-workers who failed to do the same thing. Two years into the change effort, executives reverted to the old system because the new way wasn't working. It wasn't working not because it wasn't better, it was far better, but because in the executive's own words, people didn't know how to confront individuals who failed to get with the program. Policies, systems, programs, any method for encouraging change will never function fully until people know how to talk to one another about deviations and disappointments. Institutional survival calls for constant change. Change calls for new expectations, and like it or not, new expectations eventually will be violated. If you can't confront those who fail to live up to the new promises, no memo, no policy, and no system will ever make up for the deficiency. Back to the good news. The skills for mastering crucial confrontations can be learned. With the right kind of help, people can and do learn crucial confrontation skills all the time. The Enormous Benefits of Confronting Others and the Enormous Costs of Walking Away 
Let's imagine for a minute that people can learn how to respond in healthier, more effective ways. This means, of course, that they have to embrace the skills routinely displayed by Melissa and the hundreds of other opinion leaders we studied. They have to know how to master their own emotions, describe problems in ways that don't cause defensiveness, make tasks both motivating and easy, and handle anything that's thrown at them. Here's the big question. Is the effort worth it? Will people who learn how to master crucial confrontations merely feel like they've just graduated from charm school? Or will the world change in significant and lasting ways? How big are the stakes here? Improving Accountability and Morale To answer this question, let's return to the plywood mill. Remember Leo? We taught him and his peers how to talk to direct reports who didn't live up to a commitment. Profitability, productivity, and morale all improved. Is it possible that these advances were due to something as vague as an improvement in supervisory skills? Absolutely. This particular project included five plants where supervisors were taught how to hold crucial confrontations and five plants that received no training. No other changes were made in the operation of any of the plants. Only the plants where the supervisors were trained improved. Other Organizational Improvement Let's expand the promise we just made. People can learn crucial confrontation skills, and when they do, organizations benefit. And now for the expansion. Not only do organizations benefit, they benefit a great deal more than most people can imagine. Making 25 to 50 percent improvements. How could organizations that had instituted tortuous change efforts just to eke out a meager half percent improvement suddenly enjoy leaps in quality and productivity of 25 to 50 percent? First, there had to be a great deal of room for improvement. Second, leaders had to find a way to tap into it and make the improvements. To get a feeling for how much there is to be gained, let's return to Leo. We realize that many of you were thinking that you work in a company that is a lot healthier than a place where leaders actually pummel employees. Please hang in there with us for a moment, and you'll see how this example relates to almost everyone. After learning that Leo had beat up a machine operator, we were dying to hear what the employees had to say, and so we talked to the machine operator along with dozens of his co-workers. The employees were surprisingly accepting of the fact that excessive force was part of their daily routine. Supervisors were constantly screeching, hurling insults, and making threats, and occasionally they even got into fights. Yet nobody was up in arms. Perhaps the reason employees were so calm was that they had found ways to get even. When supervisors offended them, they struck back by surreptitiously grinding perfectly good veneer into scrap. This put the supervisors' jobs at risk by killing the numbers. The supervisors were aware of the sabotage and developed the practice of climbing into the rafters to spy on the workers. Then, if they saw something they didn't like, they would descend from their hidden perches and confront the offending employee. Employees took turns watching to see if they were being spied on so that they could be on their best behavior when the word got out that they were under scrutiny. And you thought your job was tough? Now to our point. These attacks and counterattacks were costing the mill a fortune. 
the cost of registering and processing complaints, pausing to badmouth leaders, destroying raw materials, sabotaging machinery, and engaging in dozens of other non-value-added tasks was enormous. When supervisors eventually learned how to hold people accountable, it's little wonder that they made measurable improvements. Morale had been so low and costs had been so high that even minor changes in supervisory behavior made for enormous changes and results. Improving Discretionary Effort Guess what? The plywood mill doesn't stand alone. One day, as we walked into a massive public works facility, we asked the manager, How many people work here? Without cracking a smile, the languid leader pulled a toothpick from his mouth and drawled, About forty percent. He was close to being right. A national poll of U.S. workers found that 44% reported putting in as little effort as they could get away with without being fired. Our own research has shown that most organizations are losing between 20 and 80% of their potential performance because of leaders' and employees' inability to step up to and master crucial confrontations. For example, we've asked leaders in over a dozen industries to estimate the ratio of the contribution of their highest performers to that of their lowest performers. The typical difference is 8 to 1. In one high-tech firm, we learned that top code writers outperform the bottom performers by a factor of 10 to 1. And you guessed it, the lower performers often make about the same amount of money. They're typically not confronted, but are just called deadwood and left to languish while the top performers carry the load. It's little wonder that by teaching people how to improve their ability to have crucial confrontations, we've routinely achieved 20 to 40 percent improvements. These results may be just the tip of the iceberg. How about you? By how much do your high performers outproduce your low performers? and families and civic organizations are no different. Top performers always carry more than their fair share. The bottom 20% of any population takes up 80% of the time of the people in positions of responsibility. These inequities and performance gaps can and should be reduced, but they'll be reduced only when leaders, parents, and co-workers learn how to step up to and hold people accountable. Let's move to the public domain. Remember Sarah, the head nurse at the Pine Valley Medical Center? She's not the only healthcare professional who isn't sure how to confront others. Last year, 41 million colds were erroneously treated with antibiotics because doctors were unwilling to confront patients who demanded drugs. Patients show up with a cold, don't like to be told that their illness will just have to run its course, demand antibiotics and get them, even though they won't help. Why? because the doctors can't just say no to drugs. In one startling study, researchers posing as doctors phoned nurses and asked them to medicate a patient. That request violated four hospital policies. First, the doctor was unknown to the nurse. Second, the request came over the phone. Third, it was for a medication that was not approved for use at that hospital. Fourth, the dose dangerously exceeded the allowable amount. Now for the punchline, 95% of the nurses tried to comply. They were stopped before they could. What are the implications of this research? What happens if nurses aren't comfortable speaking up? 
According to another study, they and other healthcare professionals typically don't speak up when colleagues fail to wash their hands adequately. Two million infections a year occur in U.S. hospitals, and experts believe most are caused by contact with healthcare workers. Wouldn't it be nice if you could find a way to encourage people to wash for the required time without having to face a crucial confrontation? With this in mind, the Centers for Disease Control insisted that hospitals add more sinks. As you might suspect, the sinks went in, but nothing changed. Once again, physical changes and changes in policies are generally insufficient to propel improvement. If professionals can't talk about questionable medications or incomplete procedures, problems will continue. What the CDC should have demanded was a new skill set. And now for the final domain, the home. What happens when couples are unable to work through their differences in healthy ways? The cost is obvious. When couples know how to resolve tough problems, how to step up to a crucial confrontation and hold it well, they're likely to stay together. Couples who rely on contemptuous facial expressions, hostile stares, and thinly veiled threats don't stay together. How do we know? Following similar studies by researchers Markman and Notarius, Professor James Murray and psychologist John Gottman videotaped 700 couples as they did their best to work through typical problems. Trained observers then judged what they saw. Couples who were able to talk in a way that maintained respect and solved the problem were placed in one camp. Couples who relied on negative methods were placed in another. As the researchers followed the couples for the next decade, the way the couples treated each other during the videotaped conversations predicted who would stay together 94% of the time. Couples who had demonstrated the ability to work through differences by stating their views honestly and respectfully stayed together. That's astounding. Who can predict 94% of any human behavior? What makes this finding even more mind-boggling is that researchers had to watch the couples for only 15 minutes to predict marital success. What would happen if, after a brief review, at-risk couples learned how to work through crucial confrontations? Imagine the pain and suffering they could avoid. Dare we enter the domain of child-rearing? Like it or not, parents and guardians are the primary role models for social skills. It's little wonder that as children move through school, boys bully and girls freeze out their peers. It's not as if children were born with the ability to work through differences. Plop them in front of the TV, where they watch 16,000 simulated murders and 200,000 acts of violence by the age of 18. Let them peek in on their parents as they argue. Half of those parents are verbally slamming each other. And is anyone surprised that when they go to school, they often mistreat one another? When students enter the job market, guess what happens? They don't excrete new hormones that enhance their social competency. And, of course, human resource managers don't filter out the low performers. New employees may walk through a metal detector to spot weapons, but they don't walk through a social skills detector that determines whether they know how to have a crucial confrontation effectively. What's the bottom line? If you can't confront violated expectations effectively... You eventually experience massive personal, social, and organizational consequences. You never get better, and you can't run away.
Healthcare professionals will continue to remain silent as colleagues fail to comply with standard guidelines. Productivity will continue to run at half of what it should be. The divorce rate will continue to hover around an abysmal 50%. However, if you learn how to hold people accountable in a way that solves problems without causing new ones, you can look forward to significant and lasting change. In fact, learn how to have crucial confrontations, and you'll never have to walk away from another conflict again. Chapter 1. Choose What and If How to Know What Crucial Confrontation to Hold and If You Should Hold It Problems rarely come in tiny boxes, certainly not the issues we care about. Those come in giant bundles. For instance, your in-laws just walked in unannounced while you were eating dinner. You've talked to them about giving you a heads up, particularly if they plan on dropping in at dinner time, and they still prance in on a whim. What problem do you address? You don't have enough food to go around. That could be easy to discuss. They've repeatedly promised they would notify you, but are constantly breaking that agreement and losing your trust. That is likely to be hard to bring up. Finally, after turning down your invitation to join you at the table, they pout and whimper in the corner. That could be really difficult to confront. Let's try a work example. Your boss promises you a raise and then recants. This is the second time he's promised you something, only to go back on the promise, except this time he dropped the bomb in a meeting, and so you couldn't complain on the spot. When you stopped him in the hallway to bring up the issue, he told you that he was in a hurry and said you should stop being insensitive to my time demands. You asked if you could talk later, and he said, Hey, I didn't get the money I deserved either. In each of these cases, you're left with two questions that you have to answer before you open your mouth, what and if. First, what violation or violations should you actually address? How do you dismantle a bundle of problems into its component parts and choose the one you want to confront? You have a lot to choose from, and you can't confront them all, at least not in one sitting. Second, you have to decide if you're going to say anything. Do you speak up and run the risk of causing a whole new set of problems, or do you remain silent and run the risk of never solving the problem? Let's take these two questions one at a time. We'll deal with the if question once we've resolved the what question. Choosing what The question of what you should discuss may be the most important concept we cover in this book. When problems come in complicated bundles, and they often do, it's not always easy to know which problem or problems to address. For example, a teenage daughter swears to her father she'll be home from her first big date by midnight, but doesn't come home until 1 a.m. Here's the pressing question. What problem should he confront? That's easy, you say. She was late. True, that's one way to describe the problem. Here are several other ways. She broke a promise. She violated her father's trust. She drove her father insane with fear that she had been killed in a car wreck. She purposely and willfully disobeyed a family rule. She openly defied her father in an effort to break free of parental control. She was getting even with her father for grounding her the weekend before. 
She knew it would drive her father bonkers if she stayed out late with a guy who sports a dozen face perforations, and so she did that. Although it's true that the daughter walked in the door sixty minutes after curfew, this may not be the exact and only problem her father wants to discuss. Here's the added danger. If he selects the wrong problem from this lengthy list of possible problems and handles it well, he may be left with the impression that he's done the right thing. However, if you want to join the ranks of the world's best problem solvers, you have to identify and deal with the right problem or it will never go away. This still leaves us with the question, what is the right problem? Signs that you're dealing with the wrong problem. Your solution doesn't get you what you really want. To get a feel for how to choose the right problem, let's look at an actual case we recently uncovered during a training session for school principals. It's from a grade school principal's experience. During recess, a teacher notices the following interaction. Two second-grade girls are playing on the monkey bars. As Maria pushes Sarah to hurry her along, Sarah shouts, Don't you ever touch me again, you dirty little Mexican! Maria counters with, At least I'm not a big fatty! This is the precipitating event. The principal calls the children's parents, describes what took place, and explains that the school will be disciplining them. Maria's parents are fine with the idea and thank the principal. That's the end of the discussion. Sarah's mother takes a different approach. She asks, Exactly what form of discipline will each child receive? The principal explains that the discipline will suit the nature of the offense. The next day, Sarah's mother shows up unannounced, catches the principal in the hallway, and proclaims in loud and harsh tones that she doesn't want the school to discipline her daughter. She'll take care of the discipline on her own. The principal explains that the school is bound by public policy to take action. In fact, tomorrow Sarah will be separated from her friends during lunch and required to take her meal in the media room under the supervision of a teacher's aide. That's the prescribed discipline. Sarah's mother then announces that tomorrow she'll be picking up her daughter for a private mommy-daughter lunch at a nearby restaurant. There are several problems in this scenario. When the principals in the training session hear about the incident, many become emotional. That's an easy one to figure out, some suggest. You turn it over to the district discipline committee. Besides, since there are racial issues involved here, you could get the mother in trouble for interfering. Of course, the goal here isn't to cause the mother grief. So what should the principal do? As the principals settle down to discuss the problem in earnest, they bring to the surface an assortment of issues. First, there's the problem of meddling. She has no right to ask about the other child's discipline. It's a private matter. No, the bigger issue is that she is demanding to take away the school's right to discipline. That's simply unacceptable. Plus, the kid's going to be rewarded with a special lunch instead of being punished. Who wants that? How about the fact that the mother is rude and manipulative? That can't be good. Finally, one of the assistant principals brings up an issue that everyone seems to think is important. I'm worried that the parent in the school won't be partnering in solving the problem. I'd want to work with the mother to come up with a plan jointly. Otherwise, she might begin to characterize the school officials as the enemy, and the child will soon agree. 
once this important issue is highlighted as the main problem, a discussion can be held to resolve it, and the principal can get what it is he or she really wants, a working partnership with the parent that will help benefit the child. Solutions to any of the other problems would not have accomplished this, and the frustration would have remained. So take note. If the solution you're applying doesn't get you the results you really want, it's likely you're dealing with the wrong problem entirely. You're constantly discussing the same issue. Before we deal with the aggressive mother, let's look at another problem. This time, you're working with the owner of a real estate firm in a rural community. The woman who works the front desk is constantly coming in to work late, the owner explains. Have you talked to her? you ask. Repeatedly. And then what happens? you continue. She's on time for a few days, maybe even a week, and then she starts coming in late again. Then what do you say to her? I tell her that she's late and that I don't like it. This situation presents a terrific example of what separates the best problem solvers from everyone else. The owner has the courage to confront the desk clerk. That separates him from the worst. However, the fact that he returns to the same problem each time puts him far below the best. This is an indication that there is some other problem that needs to be discussed. The front desk clerk isn't living up to her commitments, she's disrespecting company policy, etc. Groundhog Day When people repeatedly make the same mistake, those who are the best at identifying and then confronting problems redefine each problem with each new infraction. They don't live the wretched life of Phil Connors, the weatherman in the movie Groundhog Day. Those who observe repeated failures and discuss each new instance as if it were the first one live the same problem, the same day, over and over, and nothing ever changes. Skilled problem-solvers never live Groundhog Day. The first time a person is late, she's late. The second time, she's failed to live up to her promise. The third time, she's starting down the road to discipline, etc. In summary, if you find yourself having the same problem-solving discussion over and over again, it's likely there is another, more important problem you need to address. You're getting increasingly upset. As you continue your conversation with the realtor, you say, Obviously, the fact that your clerk comes in late is the behavior that catches your attention, and that's what you talk to her about. But what is the real problem here? I'm not exactly sure. I do know that it's starting to bug me a lot, more than it probably should. Are you becoming more upset because the problem's escalating? Not really, the broker responds hesitantly. Finally, you ask, When you're angry enough to complain to your wife, co-workers, or best friend about the problem, how do you describe it? A light goes on in the broker's eyes as he excitedly states, it's killing me that she's taken advantage of our relationship. She's my neighbor, she's helped me out a lot, and now she doesn't do what I ask because she knows that I won't discipline her since we're good friends. At least that's how it feels to me. That's the problem the broker needs to confront. He's becoming increasingly upset with each infraction because he's never dealt with the issue that is bothering him. Being late is the frozen tip floating above the chilly waters, Taking advantage of a friendship is the iceberg itself. Confronting the Right Issue 
As you can see from these examples, learning how to get at the gist of an infraction requires time and practice. Feeling pressured by time constraints and hyped up by emotions, most people miss the real deal. It takes grade school assistant principals 20 minutes or more to discuss the assortment of challenges presented in the case of the aggressive mother. In fact, most never come to the realization that it's the lack of cooperation that they probably ought to discuss. Many can't get past their emotional reaction. They want to stick it to the feisty mother, and frankly, that's exactly what many would do. Along a similar vein, most parents who pace the floor nervously as a teenage daughter breaks curfew can't see beyond the hands of the clock when in truth what really has them concerned is the fact that the girl didn't have the courtesy to call them, let them know she'd be late, and bring a merciful end to their tortured worrying. Many don't even realize that this is what is troubling them. The ability to reduce an infraction to its bare essence takes patience, a sense of proportion, and precision. First, you have to take the time to unbundle the problem. People are often in too much of a hurry to do this. Their emotions propel them to move quickly, and speed rarely leads to careful thought. Second, while sorting through the issues, you have to decide what is bothering you the most. If you don't, you'll end up going after either the wrong target or too many targets. Third, you have to be concise. You have to distill the issue to a single sentence. Lengthy problem descriptions only obscure the real issue. If you can't reduce a violation to a clear sentence before you talk, the issue almost never becomes more understandable and focused as a conversation unfolds. Helpful Tools to Get to the Right Confrontation Let's say that despite your best efforts, you keep returning to the same problem. Your emotions are getting worse, not better, and in retrospect you believe that you're choosing to talk about what's easy, convenient, or obvious, but not what's important. In short, you have every reason to believe that you're repeatedly dealing with the wrong problem. How do you turn this bad habit around? To hit the right target, use the following tools. Think CPR, Content, Pattern, Relationship. This acronym can help define a problem as well as eliminate Groundhog Day. The first time a problem comes up, talk about the content, what just happened. You drank too much at the luncheon, became inebriated, started talking too loud, made fun of our clients, and embarrassed the company. The content of a problem typically deals with a single event, the here and now. The next time the problem occurs, talk pattern, what has been happening over time. This is the second time this has occurred. You agreed it wouldn't happen again, and I'm concerned that I can't count on you to keep a promise. Pattern issues acknowledge that problems have histories and that histories make a difference. Frequent and continued violations affect the other person's predictability and eventually harm respect and trust. Warning. It's easy to miss the pattern and get sucked into debating content. For instance, your boss repeatedly leaves your agenda items to the end of the meeting, meaning that they typically get abbreviated or dropped altogether. You've spoken with her about it before. This time, when you bring it up, she explains how full the agenda was and how you need to be more flexible about urgent issues. If you give in to that explanation, you've missed the point. Your concern is not today's meeting, the content issue. It's the long-standing pattern. 
Sometimes the pattern sneaks up on you and a new issue arises. You point out the problem and the other person begins to either rant or pout, something that's starting to happen a lot in your conversations with him or her. It's becoming a pattern. Influential people notice this pattern of behavior and find ways to address it before moving back to the original topic. As the problem continues, talk about relationship, what's happening to us. Relationship concerns are far bigger than either the content or the pattern. The issue is not that other people have disappointed you repeatedly. It's that the string of disappointments has caused you to lose trust in them. You doubt their competency, you don't respect or trust their promises, and this is affecting the way you treat one another. This is starting to put a strain on how we work together. I feel like I have to nag you to keep you in line, and I don't like doing that. I guess my fear is that I can't trust you to keep the agreements you make. If your real concern is around the relationship and you discuss only the pattern of behavior, you're likely to find yourself feeling dissatisfied with the outcome. Even worse, you're likely to experience Groundhog Day. You'll have the same conversation again later. To understand the various kinds of content, pattern, and relationship issues that routinely pop up during crucial confrontations, consider the following three dimensions. Consequences, intents, and wants. Each provides a distinct method for first unbundling and then prioritizing complex problems. Unbundling Consequences Problems are almost never contained in the behavior of the offender. They're much more likely to be contained in what happens afterward. The problem lies in the consequences. For example, a staff specialist who works for you is supposed to complete a financial analysis by noon. She miscalculates how long it will take and delivers the job to you three hours late. The errant behavior, being late, is not the problem. What follows is the fact that you might lose a client is what really bothers you. Or maybe it's the fact that this is the third time this person has let you down and you're beginning to wonder if you can count on her. Or perhaps it's the fact that you now may have to watch this person more closely, costing you precious time and making her feel micromanaged. Each of these things comes after the behavior, is a consequence of the original act, and helps unbundle the problem. When you want to clarify the issue you need to confront, stop and ask yourself, what are the consequences of this problem to me, to our relationship, to the task, to other stakeholders? Analyzing the consequences helps you determine what is most important to discuss. Intentions Let's move the analysis in another direction. A fellow you work with is causing you a problem. He cheerfully agreed to format a report you created, and then, instead of giving it to you, he handed it directly to your boss. What was he thinking? Actually, you have a theory. You believe that his intentions were selfish. He was trying to take credit. At least, this is the conclusion you've drawn. Let's be clear about this. You've drawn this conclusion not as a thoughtless knee-jerk reaction, as is often the case, but as the result of mounting evidence. You've examined the problem, you've weighed the particulars, and you were starting to believe the person's intentions are indeed bad. When this happens, the behavior isn't the problem, at least not the big one. What came before the person acted is the problem, at least in your mind. It's the issue you ought to discuss. 
you have to talk about intentions. The good news is that we address intentions all the time. Consider the father who was upset with his daughter for coming in late because she was punishing him for having grounded her. It wasn't the fact that she had been late that made him upset, at least not totally. It was her perceived intention that was giving him fits. She's doing it on purpose just to make me sweat. The realtor believed that the front desk clerk was intentionally playing on their friendship to get away with coming in late. Once again, it was her perceived intent that bothered him. Whether the father and the realtor are correct in their assessments will remain unknown until they confront the offending parties with their suspicions. And, of course, deciding how they'll confront such a delicate issue isn't easy. These are invisible motives we're talking about. We're drawing conclusions about another person's unseen intent. Nevertheless, the conclusions the two have drawn about others' underlying intent has them bothered, and these are the issues they'll need to confront eventually. An Application Let's apply these concepts to a real case. Your two preteen kids were invited to go to a drive-in movie with their friends who live down the street. You gave them permission to stay up late and you popped popcorn, and your children are now so excited that they can hardly see straight. Then the parents who will be taking the kids to the movie drive up to your house in their pickup truck. Their two children are seated in the back, and your kids quickly join them. You have a strict family rule about not riding in the back of a pickup, particularly one that will be driving at freeway speed to get to the movie. Your spouse feels as strongly about the safety issue as you do. You start to raise your safety concerns, and your neighbor calls you a fuss budget and a worry wart. Before you can respond, your spouse cuts you off and tries to smooth over the issue by saying to the father who is driving, You're going to be extra careful, right? Those kids in the back are pretty precious cargo. The driver says not to worry and pulls off as your kids squeal in delight. You're furious. What do you say to your spouse? Your first inclination is to talk about the danger, but that ship has sailed, well, sort of rumbled, off into the sunset. Although you'll return to the issue later, when your kids are around, they knew better than to get into the truck, you think that maybe you should talk about the fact that this is the second time your spouse has backed off on a family value under pressure. That's a new problem, backing off a value, not just safety, and it's a pattern. Then again, what really has you miffed is the fact that your spouse cut you off as you were raising the safety issue with your neighbor. You think that your spouse's intention was cockeyed. It was more important to look cool than to ensure the safety of your children. As you think about it, you ask yourself what you want and don't want. You want the kids to be safe, that's a given, but once again, you'll talk about that issue as a group. You want to be able to express concerns without being cut off or dismissed. You want your spouse to be able to talk about the issue without making you feel attacked. You don't want the discussion to turn into a fight. As far as your relationship is concerned, you want to stand as a unified front when it comes to safety, and then you put your finger on the real kicker. The pattern you were concerned about is your spouse unintentionally taking away your vote in these key decisions. Yes, that's it. It's when your spouse announces a decision publicly without ensuring that you're in agreement. You decide to talk about making critical commitments, especially those that deviate from values such as safety, without one another's buy-in. 
you want to find a way to always stand together when faced with outside pressures, and safety is certainly not an exception. That's the big issue. Not speaking when you should. Let's start with a simple premise. More often than not, we don't speak up when we should. Sure, sometimes we confront a problem at the wrong time or in the wrong way, but that's not the predominant issue in most families and companies. Going to silence is the prominent issue in these situations. To help diagnose whether you're clamming up when you should be speaking up, ask the following four questions. Am I acting out my concerns? Is my conscience nagging me? Am I choosing the certainty of silence over the risk of speaking up? Am I telling myself that I'm helpless? Am I acting out my concerns? Let's say you've observed a problem at work. Several members of the technical support team aren't keeping an 8-to-5 work schedule. Instead, they're working flex time. They often arrive late and then work past closing. This bugs you because they agreed to stick to the posted schedule. After thinking about it, you decide that maybe being a stickler isn't such a good idea. They're putting in the hours, and there's no need to rock the boat. You're still bugged because they broke their word and it feels like they're acting like prima donnas, but you're not going to say a word. Holding your tongue probably isn't going to work in this case. If the broken promise is really bothering you, you're unlikely to be a good enough actor to hide your feelings. You may try to choke them down, but they'll bubble up to the surface in unhealthy ways. If you don't talk it out, you'll act it out. An actor named John LaMotta taught us this concept. We had hired him to play the role of a manager in a training video we were producing. During rehearsals, he kept turning the rather harmless opening line into an attack. Later, we learned that he had assumed that the person he was working with was a dipstick because he hadn't done his job. Consequently, no matter how we directed John, telling him to soften his delivery, drop the anger, etc., he treated the fellow with disdain. He didn't stray from the written script, but his negative assumptions found their way into his nonverbal behavior. First his tone, then a smirk, then a raised fist, and so forth. When the director finally told John that the fellow was a hard worker whom everyone liked, John delivered his lines spot on. He couldn't change his actions until he changed his mind. Paul Ekman, a scholar who has studied facial expressions and emotions for 30 years, came to the same conclusion. When people try to hide their feelings or put on an emotion, Ekman found they use different groups of muscles than they use to express authentic feelings. For example, authentic smiles of joy involve the muscles surrounding the eyes. False or social smiles bypass the eyes completely. And other people can tell. You can't hide your real emotions. There's more. When you observe a problem, feel bad about it, and then decide to say nothing, your feelings don't come out only in your facial expressions and other nonverbal behaviors. They also escape in the form of biting sarcasm, cutting humor, or surprising non-sequiturs. For instance, while seated across from his mother at the dinner table, a 29-year-old chronically unemployed son politely tells her that she has a hunk of lasagna on her chin. Mom responds with, Oh yeah? When I was your age, I had two jobs. Guess what has been annoying her? 
when you've gone silent, but your body language keeps sending out hostile signals, or you're dropping hints or relying on sarcasm, you probably ought to speak up. Is my conscience nagging me? Sometimes you don't speak your mind because you feel isolated. You see a problem, but fear that you're the only one who cares. No one else shows signs of anxiety. Now what am I supposed to do, you wonder? Why aren't my healthcare colleagues concerned that we're not washing our hands long enough? How come my fellow accountants are looking the other way when our biggest client violates standard practices? How come my neighbors, spouse, and kids don't think riding in the back of a pickup is dangerous? Even though you're worried, your conscience is nagging you a little. You say nothing. The fact that people often remain silent despite their best judgment has been studied extensively. For instance, Solomon Ash created conditions in which people wouldn't just remain silent when they believed they were at odds with their peers. They actually lied rather than disagree with them. Stanley Milgram replaced peers with authority figures and was able to manipulate the subjects to do more than lie. He got people to shock others to the point where they worried that they might have killed the other persons rather than disagree with the individual in the white lab jacket. Peer pressure coupled with formal authority can compel people to act against their best judgment. Here's how it affects crucial confrontations. If social pressure can cause people to lie, it can certainly drive people to silence. Pay attention to a nagging conscience. It may be indicating a confrontation that you need to step up to. When you've gone to silence and your conscience is nagging you, you probably ought to speak up. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. Am I choosing the certainty of silence over the risk of speaking up? When it comes to deciding whether we're going to speak up, we kid ourselves into making the same error over and over. We choose the certainty of what is currently happening to us, no matter how awful it may be, over the uncertainty of what might happen if we said something. This, of course, drives us to silence, quietly embracing the devil we know, when there's a good chance that we really should have spoken up. Here's how this insidious dynamic works. When we're trying to figure out if we should speak up, we often envision a horrific failure and immediately decide to go to silence. Then we look for reasons to justify the choice to say nothing. Our reasoning takes place in the following way. We first ask ourselves, Can I succeed in this confrontation? We don't ask, Should I try? Instead, we ask, Can I succeed? When the answer to the internal query is a resounding no, we decide that we shouldn't try. Effective problem solvers take the opposite approach. Only after they've decided that the conversation should be held do they ask the question, How can I do this? Better still, how can I do this well? If we reverse the order, starting with can and not should, we almost always sell out. We decide to clam up and then justify our inaction. 
Our two favorite methods for tricking ourselves into remaining silent are, one, downplaying the cost of not speaking, and two, exaggerating the cost of expressing our views. Downplaying the cost of not speaking. Here's how we minimize in our own minds the cost of continuing to tolerate the status quo. First, we look exclusively at what's happening to us now rather than at the total effect. A professor is boring, unfair, and outdated, but why rock the boat? We'll survive, right? Never mind the fact that thousands of students will be affected over the next two decades of that professor's career. Second, we underestimate the severity of the existing circumstances because we become inured to the consequences we're suffering. With time and constant exposure, we come to believe that our wretched conditions are acceptable. We continue to work for authoritarian bosses, stay married to people who physically and mentally abuse us, and work alongside people who ignore and insult us because we tell ourselves that it's not really that bad. It's just how things are. Third, as was suggested earlier, we can't see our own bad behavior when we fail to maintain silence. For example, we think we're silently suffering under the thumb of a micromanager. In actuality, we act offended when the boss asks for details. We say we know how to do the job, cutting her off when she tries to offer a suggestion. We defiantly choose to do something our way. We miss the fact that our own behavior has been degraded. In this case, we don't merely downplay the cost of silence. We miss it entirely. Am I telling myself that I'm helpless? At the heart of most decisions to stay quiet, even though we're currently suffering, lies the fear that we won't be able to make a difference. We believe that either other people or the circumstances themselves make the problem insoluble. That puts the problem out of our control. It's not us, it's them. Have you ever tried to talk to that guy? He's a maniac! Have you ever attempted to tell a senior executive that she doesn't really know how to do her job? Like that's going to work. The truth is that many confrontations fail not because others are bad and wrong, but because we handle them poorly. It's our fault. We decide to step up to a failed promise and subtly attack the other person. He or she then gets hooked, and we're now in a heated battle. Naturally, we see the other person getting hooked, but miss the part we played in escalating the problem by doing such a shoddy job of bringing it up in the first place. We're like the young boy who refused to see his role in an argument by explaining to his mother, It all started when he hit me back. Even when we do see the role we're playing in a problem by owning up to the fact that our confrontation skills aren't that great, we often act as if we were as talented as we're ever going to be. We've peaked. We'll never get better. We make this assumption because most of us aren't exactly students of social influence. We've spent more time memorizing the capitals of Europe than we have examining the intricacies of human interaction. We rarely think of influence skills as something that a person should and can learn through actual study. But, as this book asserts, these skills can be learned and improved. When you've gone to silence because you're afraid you're not skilled enough to have a crucial confrontation, your assessment may be correct. If this is the case, enhance your skills. There's no use suffering forever. Be careful not to let fear taint your judgment. 
You may have the skills to deal with a particular issue, but are letting your fear keep you from speaking up. When you're thinking about going to silence, ask yourself if you're copping out rather than making a reasoned choice. Chapter 2. Master My Stories How to Get Your Head Right Before Opening Your Mouth Anyone who has ever dealt with crucial confrontations realizes that a person's behavior during the first few seconds of the interaction sets the tone for everything that follows. You have no more than a sentence or two to establish the climate. If you set the wrong tone or mood, it's hard to turn things around. This can be troublesome because when someone lets us down or behaves badly, the last thing we're thinking about is the climate we're about to establish. More often than not, we're completely immersed in the details of what just happened. And if that doesn't consume all of our time and attention, our emotions eat up anything that's left. Consider the following example. Hang the gearheads. Imagine that you're part of an overworked, stressed-out management team that's sitting around a table large enough to double as an airport runway, discussing what it'll take to finish a development project. The phone rings. The quality manager picks it up, carries on a heated discussion, and then slams the phone back onto its cradle. It's final assembly. The software we just completed is giving them fits, she says with a look typically associated with the act of biting the head off a chicken. Oh, great! The software is glitchy! shouts the vice president of development. Within seconds, the entire leadership team is complaining about the unorthodox, selfish, weird software testers. Then they arise as one and start marching toward the testing department. Since you've worked with this team for only a month, you aren't sure what's going on. As the team members hustle down the hallway, the operations manager explains that the software is supposed to be tested and retested before it's sent on to final assembly. Otherwise, it often causes problems, and expensive ones at that. The stupid gearheads only have to run a simple testing package. That way they can catch problems early on, and we never send software on to final assembly, where it can cause costly delays. Why didn't they run the tests? you ask. That's what we're about to find out, answers the senior VP as the vein on his forehead swells to the size of a mop handle. He and the other leaders charge down the hall like a band of white-collar vigilantes, and you think to yourself, this is about to turn ugly. Behold a train wreck. Obviously, this group has a checkered history with the people it's about to accost. The managers are feeling morally superior and are about to create a nasty scene. Of course, in many companies, confrontations may not get that heated. The tone may be softer, the language less brutal, and the threats more veiled. Less punitive folks rely on cold stares, sarcasm, and pointed humor. But the results are probably the same. Employees fail to deliver on a promise, and the bosses jump to a conclusion and jump hard. What makes these crucial confrontations interesting is that the underlying cause doesn't really matter. If leaders start out with strong emotions, believing that they are on the moral high road, the interaction is likely to turn out badly for everyone, regardless of the underlying cause. The scene continues as the managers rush in like so many deputies preparing for a lynching. They catch the programmers checking out a cool new website with a free game download, and then do what one might expect. 
They snarl at the guilty testers, call them unflattering names, threaten them with discipline, curse them, and pretty much throw a group hissy fit. This ugly battle rages until the information technology manager, who just walked into the building, hears about what's happening to his people and rallies to the testers. A full-fledged shouting match ensues. It's not long before the IT manager is accusing the rest of the management team of treating the programmers with disrespect, making false accusations, and using offensive language. The managers are now so angry that they could spit. They've caught the weasels red-handed, they really had messed up, and their colleague, the IT manager, has the nerve to be pointing at the management team. Has the world gone completely mad? It takes days for this incident to settle down, and everyone ends up with egg on his or her face. Everyone. The Problem Telling Ugly Stories Is it possible that everyday people with an IQ higher than that of a houseplant could be so hasty, judgmental, and unfair? Aren't most of us more careful, scientific, and thoughtful? In a word, no. We may not be as blatantly abusive as the managers in the software case, but when we face high-stakes problems, we're just as likely to come up with an unflattering story and act on it as if it were true. Jumping to Conclusions and Making Assumptions How can this be? During the 1950s and 1960s, scholars conducted a lengthy series of research projects known as attribution studies. Their goal was to learn how normal people determine the cause of a problem. To uncover the thought pattern, they provided subjects with descriptions of people engaging in socially unacceptable behavior. A woman steals cash from a co-worker, a father yells at his children, a neighbor cuts in front of you in the checkout line, and then asked the subjects, why did that person do such a thing? It turns out that people aren't all that good at attributing causality accurately. We quickly jump to unflattering conclusions. The chief error we make is a simple one, we assume that people do what they do because of personality factors, mostly motivational, alone. Why did that woman steal from a co-worker? She's dishonest. Why did that man yell at his children? He's mean. Why did the programmers fail to conduct a test? They're arrogant, lazy, and selfish. How can we be so simplistic and inaccurate? Most of the time, human beings employ what is known as a dispositional rather than a situational view of others. We argue that people act the way they do because of uncontrollable personality factors, their disposition, as opposed to doing what they do because of forces in their environment, the situation. We make this attribution error because when we look at others, we see their actions far more readily than we see the forces behind them. In contrast, when considering our own actions, we're acutely aware of the forces behind our choices. Consequently, we believe that others do bad things because of personality flaws, whereas we do bad things because the devil made us do them. In truth, people often enact behaviors they take no joy in because of social pressure, lack of other options, or any of a variety of forces that have nothing to do with personal pleasure. For example, the woman stole because she needed money to buy medicine for her children, your neighbor cut in line at the market because he was tending to his two toddlers and didn't notice that he wasn't taking his turn. Your half-cousin was hauled off to jail for holding up a convenience store, partly because of greed, 
Then again, maybe the slow and painful failure of his business contributed too. Choosing silence or violence? Silence. Not everyone who tells an ugly story angrily leaps into a crucial confrontation ready to exact a pound of flesh, at least not immediately. For many people, it takes a while to become upset, smug, or self-righteous. In fact, when we began studying confrontations 25 years ago, we learned that the vast majority of the subjects we observed were inclined to walk away from broken promises, failed expectations, or bad behavior. When we asked the subjects why they backed off, they explained that it was usually better not to deal with issues the first time they occurred. After all, many of those problems were anomalies. They weren't likely to be repeated, so why make a big deal and come off as a micromanager? Although there may be some truth to this, we also learned that most of the research subjects avoided taking action for fear of getting into a heated argument, which they assumed could lead to even more problems. Who could blame them for going to silence? However, it's not as if choosing silence were a product of scientific inquiry. We back away from people because we conclude that they're selfish or rotten. Then we act on that conclusion as if it were the truth. Who's going to approach these folks? They're selfish and rotten. Therefore, we opt to stay silent. No matter what the reason is, walking away from violated expectations and broken promises can be risky. When you see a violation but move to silence rather than deal with it, three bad things happen. First, you give tacit approval to the action. If you see an infraction and say nothing, the other person can easily conclude that you've given permission. You may feel that you've given permission, and then, realizing that you've given the action the green light, you find that it's harder to say something later. Second, others may think that you're playing favorites. Hey, you never let me get away with that kind of stuff. Third, each time the other person repeats the offense, in part because of your failure to confront it, you see the new offense as evidence that your story about his or her motives was correct. You continue to tell yourself ugly stories, you fester and fuss, and it's only a matter of time until you blow. Violence Eventually, as problems gnaw at you, there comes a time when you can stand it no longer. You leap from silence to violence. A person interrupts you in mid-sentence for the hundredth time, and you finally blow a gasket. Your assistant misses an important deadline for the hundredth time, and you come unglued. Of course, you may not become physically violent, but you do employ debating tactics, give people your famous stare, raise your voice, make threats, offer up ultimatums, insult the other person, use ugly labels, and otherwise rain violence on the confrontation. Surprised by your sudden and unexpected eruption, the other person thinks that you've lost all touch with reality. Where did that come from, he or she wonders. But alas, the other person knows the answer. You did it, he or she concludes, because you're stupid and evil. You've now helped the other person commit the fundamental attribution error about you, which feeds that person's silence or violence, and the cycle continues. The solution, tell the rest of the story. 
since the problem of coming up with ugly stories and suffering the consequences takes place within the confines of your own mind, that's where the solution lies as well. Effective problem-solvers observe an infraction and then tell themselves a more complete and accurate story. Instead of asking, what's the matter with that person? They ask, why would a reasonable, rational, and decent person do that? By asking this humanizing question, individuals who routinely master crucial confrontations adopt a situational as well as a dispositional view of people. Instead of arguing that others are misbehaving only because of personal characteristics, influence masters look to the environment and ask, what other sources of influence are acting on this person? What's causing this person to do that? Since this person is rational but appears to be acting either irrationally or irresponsibly, what am I missing? You can answer these questions only by developing a more complete view of humans and the circumstances that surround them than the traditional, what's wrong with them? And if you do amplify your situational view, not only will you gain a deeper understanding of why people do what they do, you'll eventually develop a diverse set of tools for orchestrating change. Consider six sources of influence. To help expand our view of human behavior, we've organized the potential root causes of all behavior, including failed promises, into a model that contains six cells. Cell 1. Pleasure or pain. We already know the first cell. It's the one that, considered alone, makes up the fundamental attribution error. People base their actions on their individual motivation or disposition. Does the action motivate? Does the person enjoy the action independent of how others think or feel? Does it bring pleasure or pain? That's the model we already have in our heads, and it's partially true. People do have motives. Human beings do take pleasure in certain activities, and it could even be true that they enjoy making us suffer. However, this model is also the source of influence that gets us in trouble when it's the only factor we consider. Cell 2. Strength or Weakness We can double this simple model by adding individual ability. We now have two diagnostic questions. Are others motivated to do what they promised, and are they enabled? Does the action play to a person's strength or weakness? Does he or she have the skills to do what's required? By expanding the model from one to two cells, we acknowledge the fact that people not only must want to do what's required, they also need the mental and physical capacity to do it. For instance, maybe your company's customer service agents aren't returning calls to hostile clients because they don't know how to diffuse the hostility. Perhaps nurses aren't using protective gloves consistently because they can't put them on quickly enough. With two options to choose from, we also have another story to tell ourselves. Rather than judging others who violate an expectation as unmotivated and therefore selfish and insensitive, we add the possibility that maybe they actually tried to live up to their promises but ran into a barrier. Cell 3. Praise or Pressure From the way adults talk, you'd think peer pressure disappears a few weeks after the senior prom. We constantly warn our children against the insidious forces wielded by their friends, 
Yet rarely do we consider the fact that those horses aren't switched off in some mystical ritual when we finish high school. Adult peer pressure may be less obvious than its teenage counterpart, but it's no less forceful. For instance, what do you think will happen if the supervisor of the software testers walks up to one of them and says, Hey, Chris, we're running behind schedule. Could you hurry things along? What do you mean? Chris asks. You know, maybe finesse the final tests. The software seems to be running smoothly. And with that simple request, the tests are dropped. Is the other person being influenced by peers, the boss, customers, family, or for that matter, by any other human being? Should it surprise us that most of the ridiculous things both children and adults do are a result of simply wanting to be accepted? Healthcare professionals violate standards, scientists turn a blind eye to safety, accountants watch their peers break the law, and nobody says anything. Why? Because the presence of others who say nothing causes them to doubt their own beliefs, and their desire to be accepted taints their overall judgment. Peer pressure is the mother of all stupidity. Cell 4. Help or Hindrance In addition to motivating you to do things, other people can enable or disable you. They're either a help or a hindrance. For you to complete your job, your co-workers have to provide you with help, information, tools, materials, and sometimes even permission. Unless you're working in a vacuum, if your co-workers don't do their part, you're dead in the water. For example, what about the software engineers? What if their testing package failed? What if the person responsible for keeping the server online went off to a technical seminar and didn't keep them up and running as long as needed? Who knows? Maybe that's why the software is giving final assembly fits. That is the whole point of this discussion. Who knows? We're going to have to gather data. Cell 5. Carrot or Stick How do things motivate us? That's simple enough. Money motivates people. That we know. Guess what happens when money is aimed at the wrong targets? For instance, managers are rewarded for keeping costs down, and hourly employees are rewarded for working overtime. They're constantly arguing. Quality specialists earn bonuses for checking material and production employees for shipping it. They, too, seem to have trouble getting along. Maybe a team-building exercise will reduce the tension. Perhaps conflict resolution training will help. Yeah, right. When they explore underlying causes, experienced leaders quickly turn to their formal reward system and look at the impact money, promotions, job assignments, benefits, bonuses, and all the other organizational rewards are having on behavior. It is sheer folly to reward A while hoping for B. Savvy leaders and effective parents get this. Here's how this concept applies to a community example. One of the greatest challenges in influencing at-risk youth in inner-city areas is that the models of successful careers that they see often involve the sale of illegal drugs. It isn't just the influence of others that lures them into illicit trade. It's financial. Until they see clear alternative pathways to financial well-being, thousands of young men and women will be lost to this social cancer. 
Frustrated couples are no less strongly affected by this powerful source of influence. The foundations of thousands of marriages continue to erode as one or both spouses give their hearts to careers that promise increased status or rich rewards to those who pay the price. Cell 6. Bridge or Barrier When it comes to ability, things can often provide either a bridge or a barrier. For example, imagine you're trying to get the people in marketing to meet more regularly with the people in production. They currently avoid each other like the plague because they don't get along. You've aligned their goals and rewards, but marketers still call production folks thugs and production specialists call marketers slicks. You believe that if you can get them in the same room once in a while, many of their problems will go away. But how? What will it take to get them to meet more often and eventually collaborate? First, you write an inspiring memo. Nothing happens. Then you add interdepartmental collaboration to the company's performance review form. Nada. Next comes a speech, then veiled threats, and finally you create an award program that honors the collaborator of the month. You tell the various division's heads to nominate an employee for the award, and they argue endlessly about who should win. Now you decide to do some out-of-the-box thinking, only this time it's out-of-the-cash-box thinking. The heck with rewards, it's time to turn to other things. Could you do something to the physical aspects of the organization that would allow people to interact more easily and more often? Yes, you could. In fact, if you want to get the two groups to meet more often, think proximity. When it comes to the frequency of human interaction, proximity, the distance between people, is the single best predictor. Individuals who were located close to one another bump into each other and talk. When it comes to work, people who share a break room or resource pool tend to bump into each other as well. Move the marketing offices closer to the work floor, throw in a common area, and the two warring groups may warm to each other. Proximity, or the lack thereof, has an invisible but powerful effect on behavior. Completing the story When you encounter people who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's easy to wonder, what the heck were they thinking? Left to our natural proclivities, we tell a simple yet ugly story that casts others as selfish or thoughtless. We mature a little bit every time we expand the story to include a person's ability. Maybe others don't know how to do what they've promised to do. We also cut off our anger at its source. Not knowing for certain what's happening, we have to replace anger with curiosity. This puts us in a far better position to discuss an infraction as a scientist, not a vigilante. Throw in the influence of others, and the story starts to reflect the complexity of what's really going on. The fact that social forces are likely to be a huge part of any infraction doesn't escape a savvy problem-solver. Only a fool purposely pits people against their desire to belong, feel respected, and be included with their friends and colleagues. Understanding the influence of others is a prerequisite to effective problem-solving. Finally, if we really want to step into the ranks of those who master crucial confrontations, we need to consider the physical factors or things surrounding a failed promise. This isn't intuitive. In fact, rare is the parent or leader who looks at either the reward structure or other environmental factors 
when trying to bring to the surface the root cause of a behavior. Learn how to do this, and you'll be in a class of your own. Chapter 3. Describe the Gap. How to Start a Crucial Confrontation. You've picked out a problem, decided to say something, and considered the possible influences behind it. Now you are about to take action. Before you do that, let's be clear. Almost nobody should be harboring the illusion that he or she has been groomed to solve touchy and complicated interpersonal problems. Almost nobody has. Here's a typical supervisory training regime. A hard-working and competent employee is tapped on the shoulder on Friday afternoon. Congratulations, you won the supervisory lottery! And promoted to a job that starts Monday morning. Any questions? And it's not as if most employees have actually watched the way a leader deals with touchy issues or failed promises. That kind of thing happens behind closed doors. Of course, business schools, the breeding ground for managers and vice presidents, rarely teach anything about leadership. Most business school courses are about management and entrepreneurship, not leadership. Occasionally, classes cover the way leaders should think, but almost never what they should do. The curriculum certainly doesn't cover crucial confrontations. Professors and students come face to face with crucial confrontations every few minutes, but almost nobody teaches how to handle them. We don't even want to think about the preparation the average parent receives. Heaven forbid that most of us should imitate the social skills of our own adult role models. Thanks, Mom. I was afraid I was going to miss out on how to paralyze people with guilt, but you've taken time every single day to pass on an important lesson or two. Here's the $64,000 question. How are leaders and parents supposed to have picked up the ability to hold a simple goal-setting session, let alone tap-dance through a thorny, crucial confrontation? Through osmosis? If your influence training has been as sketchy as everyone else's, welcome to the club and be sure to pay close attention. We're about to share the best practices of people who know how to walk up to someone and hold a genuine, face-to-face, -face, crucial confrontation. We'll start our exploration of ways to initiate a crucial confrontation by sharing what we've learned from observing people who had the guts to step up to a problem but then quickly failed. After all, knowing what not to do is half the battle. Don't play games. The first technique is the result of good intentions and bad logic. It's called sandwiching. You honestly believe that you have two equally poor options and no other choices. You can stay quiet and keep the peace, or you can be honest and hurt someone's feelings. You use sandwiching in an earnest effort to be both nice and honest. To soften the violent blow, you first say something complimentary, next you bring up the problem, and then you close with something complimentary again. Here is an example. Hey, Bob, good-looking briefcase. By the way, do you know anything about the ten grand missing from our retirement fund? Love the haircut. A close cousin to this circuitous technique takes the form of a surprise attack. A leader starts a conversation in a chatty tone, makes pleasant small talk, and then suddenly moves in for the kill. 
The most unpleasant of these backhanded approaches is unadulterated entrapment, where one person lures the other into denying a problem, only to punish him or her for lying. It sounds something like this. How were things at school today? Fine, same old stuff. Fine, the principal called and said you started a food fight in the cafeteria. Is that supposed to be fine? Most people despise these indirect techniques. They're dishonest, manipulative, and insulting. They're also quite common. Don't play charades. Rather than come right out and talk about a problem, many people rely on nonverbal hints and subtle innuendo. They figure that's faster and safer than actually talking about a problem. Some deal almost exclusively in hints. For instance, to make their point, they frown, smirk, or look concerned. When somebody's late, they glance at their watches. This vague approach is fraught with risk. People may get the message, but what if they misinterpret the nonverbal hints? Besides, how are you supposed to document your actions? February 10th, 2 p.m. Raised my right eyebrow three centimeters. Employee nodded knowingly and started back to work. Don't pass the buck. Some leaders erroneously believe that they can play the role of good cop if only they can find a way to transform their boss into the bad cop. Parents play the same game by bad-mouthing or blaming their mates. By being the pleasant one, they argue, they're more likely to stay on civil terms with their direct reports or children. Here's the kind of stunt they pull. I know you don't want to work late, but the big guy says that if you don't, we'll write you up. If I had my way, we'd all go home early for the holiday weekend. This strategy is disloyal, dishonest, and ineffective. Anyone who wasn't raised by wolves can see through it. Nothing undermined your authority more than blaming someone else for requesting what you would be asking for if you had any guts. If you repeat this mistake, it won't be long before you're seen as irrelevant, merely a messenger and a cowardly one at that. Don't play Read My Mind If you scour the bookstores, eventually you may stumble across a few problem-solving texts that make the following suggestion. Since people benefit from learning on their own, don't come right out and tell them about the actual infraction that has you concerned. Instead, allow room for self-discovery. Make the guilty person guess what's on your mind. Here's what this can look like. Well, Carmen, why do you think I called you in so bright and early this morning? I don't know. Is it because I crashed the company car? Nope. Hmm. Was it because I sabotaged the phone system? Wrong again. Is it because... This tactic is as irritating as it is ineffective. Despite good intentions, asking others to read your mind typically comes off as extremely patronizing or manipulative. Describe the gap. To ensure that you set the right tone during the first few seconds of a crucial confrontation, don't shoot from the hip. Don't charge into a situation, kick rears, take names, and let the chips fall where they may. Instead, carefully describe the gap. Here's how. Start with safety, share your path, end with a question. 
start with safety. When another person has let you down, start the confrontation by simply describing the gap between what was expected and what was observed. You said you were going to have your room cleaned before dinner. It's nine o'clock and it's still not done. Don't play games, merely describe the gap. Describing what was expected versus what was observed is clear and simple, and it helps you get off on the right foot. For the most part, this is how you'll begin the crucial confrontation. However, if you have reason to believe that the other person will feel threatened or intimidated or insulted by the mere mention of the broken promise, you'll need to take steps to ensure that he or she feels safe, no matter the topic. The Big Surprise At the foundation of every successful confrontation lies safety. When others feel frightened or nervous or otherwise unsafe, you can't talk about anything. But if you can create safety, you can talk with almost anyone about almost anything, even about failed promises. Of course, the more confrontational and touchy the issue is, the more challenging the confrontation will be. Nevertheless, if you maintain a safe climate, others will hear and consider what you're saying. They may not like it, but they'll be able to absorb it. Make it safe for people, and they won't need to go to silence or violence. Mutual Respect As you first describe the gap, if your tone of voice, facial expression, or words show disrespect, bad things are currently happening to the other person. You're not respecting that person, you're speaking in an uncivil tone, your manner is discourteous, your delivery is contemptuous. In short, you've held court that we do not respect him or her. Problems are bad things, the other person is connected to the problem, and therefore we must think he or she is bad. Despite our best efforts, others feel unsafe and go to silence or violence, and we haven't even made it all the way through our first sentence. Let's add a skill to help us with our very first sentence. We'll use it as a preemptive tool for stopping disrespect in its tracks. It's called contrasting. It's the killer of the fundamental attribution error. Here's how it works. Before you start the confrontation, anticipate how others might assume the worst. How might they feel disrespected? For instance, if you bring up a quality problem, the other person may believe that you think he or she is unskilled in general. If you address poor effort on a specific project, the other person may conclude that you believe he or she isn't motivated or can't be trusted, or perhaps you don't like him or her or are about to take disciplinary action, and so on. You've noticed a problem, and the other person prepares for the worst before you can finish your thought. To deal with these predictable misinterpretations, use contrasting. First, imagine what others might erroneously conclude. Second, immediately explain that this is what you don't mean. Third, as a contrasting point, explain what you do mean. The important part is the don't portion. It addresses misunderstandings that could put safety at risk. Once safety is protected or re-established, the do part of the statement clarifies your real meaning or intent. Establish mutual purpose. When a conversation turns ugly with greater intensity and speed than you ever imagined it could, it's usually because others misunderstand not your content, 
but your intent. You are speaking respectfully. That part you got right. You merely want to solve a problem in a way that keeps the relationship on solid footing, but the people you're talking to think differently. They believe that the only reason you're bringing up the infraction is that you're out to humiliate them, make them do something they don't want to do, overthrow their authority, or otherwise cause them pain and sorrow. They believe that bad things are about to happen to them. You can't let this happen. If you think others are likely to harbor bad thoughts about your intentions before you've even said a word, take another kind of preventive measure. Establish mutual purpose. Build common ground before you even mention a problem. Let others know that your intentions are pure, that your goal is to solve problems and make things better for both of you. Start with what's important to you and them, not just you. Establish mutual purpose. Here's an example. If it's okay with you, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes talking about how we made that last decision. My goal is to come up with a method we're both comfortable with. I'd like to give you some feedback that I think would help you be more productive with your meetings. Add contrasting. I don't think this is a huge problem, but I do think that if you were to make a couple of small changes, things would run a lot more smoothly. Ask for permission. If the topic you're about to address is traditionally off-limits, particularly sensitive, or something a person in your position doesn't normally discuss, ask for permission to discuss it. Be gracious. Don't plunge into a delicate topic without first seeking permission. Asking permission is a powerful sign of respect. It also helps allay people's suspicion that your intentions toward them are malicious. Speak in private. This safety tip is both obvious and easy. Always discuss problems in private. No matter where you may encounter a problem, retire to your office or another secluded setting where you can talk one-on-one. -on -one. Never conduct public performance reviews. Never discipline your children in front of their friends. Never confront your spouse in the middle of a dinner party. Never talk about friends, loved ones, direct reports, or bosses at the water cooler behind their backs. Speak in private, one-to-one -one and face-to-face. -face. Avoid the following common violations of this principle. Inappropriate humor. Don't violate privacy by masking a public performance review with thoughtless humor, as in this example. Well, look who just arrived. Forget how to find the meeting room, did you? For many people, this is a hard habit to break. It takes years to learn how to craft the perfect public punitive remark, veiled enough to deny, clever enough to get a laugh, and pointed enough to be nasty. Nevertheless, drop the cutting sarcasm. A group attack. Don't deal with individual problems in meetings or public gatherings by chastising the entire group. This cowardly tactic fails doubly. First, the guilty parties may miss the fact that they're the target of your snide comments. Second, the innocent people resent the fact that they're being thrown in with the guilty. Once again, problem-solving should be done in private, one-on-one. -on -one. If you can create enough safety, you can talk about just about anything with just about anyone, even a defensive boss. You note a problem, step out of the content of the conversation, 
and restore mutual respect and mutual purpose. Combining Safety Skills Let's see how these safety skills can be combined to help form the first few phrases in a crucial confrontation, particularly if the topic is touchy or the person you're dealing with is in a position of power. How, for example, could you start with safety when challenging a very defensive boss? Share your path. Let's look at the second step in describing the gap. We started with safety and will be doing our best to watch for fear throughout the discussion. When called for, we may start with a preemptive contrasting statement or describe our common ground. Once the other person feels safe, it's time to describe the gap. Start with facts. As a general rule, when you are sharing your path, it's best to start with the facts, what you saw and heard. Don't start your stories. If you do, people are likely to become defensive. Instead, describe what the person did along with the result. By talking about the result, you let the person know why you've brought up the issue. You've framed the problem. Stay external. Describe what's happening outside your head. You cut the person off in mid-sentence, as opposed to what's happening inside your head. You're rude. Explain what, not why. Facts tell us what's going on. You spoke so quietly it was hard to hear. Conclusions tell us why we think it's going on. You're afraid. Gather facts. If others complain to you about their friends and co-workers, they're likely to tell stories and leave out the facts. He's arrogant. She's unreliable. Their team is selfish. When this happens, probe for details. Ask them to share what they actually heard and saw. Even when it comes to our own thinking, it's often difficult to remember the original facts. Most of us have an experience. You spoke non-stop about yourself and didn't ask me a single question. Tell a story. You're egotistical. Generate a feeling. I don't like being around you. And then forget the original experience. In some cases, we may not even be aware of the other person's subtle action that led to the feeling. Thus, we end up walking around with feelings and stories, but are incapable of holding crucial confrontations successfully, because we lack the facts required to help others understand what we're thinking. Gathering the facts is the homework required for holding a crucial confrontation. Here's the bottom line. Every time you share a vague and possibly inflammatory story instead of a fact, you're betting that the other person won't become defensive and can translate what you're thinking into what he or she did. That's a bad bet. Share the facts. Describe the observable details of what's happening. Cut out the guesswork. Tentatively share your story. As we suggested earlier, Sometimes a person's behavior can be moderately annoying, and maybe that individual has even broken a promise, but what really has you distressed is the fact that you believe that his or her intent is less than noble. You're trying not to make the fundamental attribution error, but facts are starting to pile up, and it's hard to keep assuming the best. Keeping an open mind is one thing. Being naive is another. Continually watch for safety problems. Warning. Once you start to tell your story, no matter how tentative you are, 
there's a chance the other person will become defensive. If, for example, you believe your teenage son has stolen money from you, regardless of how tentative you are, you're likely to experience something like this. You. Given that you're the only one who's been in the house in the last four hours and $200 is missing out of my wallet, it's hard for me not to wonder if you took it. Son, I can't believe you're calling me a thief! Stomps out of room and slams door. How do you handle this kind of defensiveness? First, recognize it for what it is, a threat to safety. The problem is not that the other person can't handle the content you're offering. It's that he or she doesn't feel safe with you discussing it. When you realize that the problem is one of safety, you'll do the right thing. Step out of the content and rebuild safety. Decide whether the problem is that the other person feels disrespected, or believes your intentions are bad, or both. Then use the contrasting skill we described earlier to relieve that person's mind. You. I'm not calling you a thief. I am trying to come up with explanations for what just happened. Can you see how I would wonder, given the facts I just described? My intention here is not to accuse you, but to find out what is really going on so I can solve this problem. Can we talk about it? If you start to share your story and the other person becomes defensive, take away his or her fear. Step out of the content and restore safety. End with a question. You started the crucial confrontation by doing your best to make it safe. You shared your path in a way that continued to make it safe. Now it's time to bring your opening paragraph to a close, still maintaining safety. End with a simple diagnostic question. What happened? Make this an honest inquiry, not a veiled threat or an accusation such as, What's wrong with you? As you finish off your description of the failed expectation, your goal should be to hear the other person's point of view. If you started with safety and presented detailed facts, the person responsible for the infraction should understand what the problem is and feel comfortable talking about the underlying cause and the eventual solution. Don't underestimate the importance of this sincere question. This is a pivotal moment in the crucial confrontation, one that will sustain the safety you've created. If you sincerely want to hear the other person's point of view, you let him or her know that this is dialogue, not a monologue. You help the other person understand that your goal is not to be right or to punish, but to solve a problem, and that all the information must be out in the open for that to occur. So end your opening statement with a sincere invitation for the other person to share even completely contrary opinions with you. Finally, as the other person answers the question, what happened, listen carefully. Diagnose the root of the problem. Which of the six sources of influence are at play? Are they unmotivated? Are they unable? The solution to each alternative is quite different. You don't want to try to motivate people who can't do what you've asked, or enable people who don't care. We'll look at ways to deal with each of these problems in the next two chapters. For now, remember to listen for the underlying cause. Chapter 4 Make It Motivating How to Help Others Want to Take Action Let's look at where we are in the problem-solving process. Myra, an employee who works for you, 
failed to complete an important quality check. You observed the gap, decided to deal with it, and tried to determine the right problem to discuss. Since this was the first infraction, you've decided to talk about the content. She didn't complete the quality check. You admire Myra, and so it is easy to impute good motive. Now you describe the gap. After your brief and effective problem description, Myra responds. Remember to diagnose. The way Myra responds to your description of the gap will determine what you do next. She determines your path, not you. You'll learn where you're going by diagnosing the underlying cause of the problem. Is it a matter of motivation, ability, or both? If Myra says, I couldn't do the procedure you asked for, you'll need to figure out why. Which of the three ability forces is coming into play? If Myra replies, Come on, what's the big deal? It's a stupid little quality check. I don't really have to do it, do I? You're staring at a motivation problem. Which of the motivational forces is at work here? Knowing how to bring to the surface and resolve all the underlying causes requires a great deal of skill. If you miss a single ability barrier, the other person won't be able to cooperate. If you misinterpret the underlying motivational block, you'll be pushing the wrong buttons. You'll also have to choke back the desire to pull out the big guns to motivate, it's so fast and easy, or pull out your big ideas to enable, it's so fast and easy. Both methods are tempting, and both will be wrong. It's about to get complicated. We begin our journey into the land of multiple causes with a warning, it's about to get complicated. We also offer a promise if you follow the best practices of those who routinely step up to crucial confrontations and handle them well, you too will succeed. After hemming and hawing for a few seconds, Myra explains that she really didn't want to do the job and asks, What's the big deal? Is it really worth the effort? From this particular response, we'll conclude that she's not motivated. Other signs that a person isn't motivated include the following. I had more important things to do. It wasn't my idea to switch jobs. If you think I'm going to work on something that isn't on my performance review, you're wrong. All point to underlying motive. All imply I chose not to do it. How do we make it motivating for Myra? What do we do to get Myra to march to the beat of our drummer, not her own? How do you reach into other people's psyches regardless of their power or position, or better still, regardless of your power or position, and motivate them to do what they promised to do? Hint, your power doesn't matter all that much. In fact, in many cases, the more you think you need power to influence others' motivation, the less likely you are to do it well. Stick with us and you'll see why. Motivation with a capital M When others willfully break a promise, particularly when they cause us loads of grief, we want so desperately to motivate the guilty parties that the whole concept of motivation takes on mythical proportions. We think of motivation with a capital M, arm-flailing speeches echoing through a coliseum with the crowd cheering. Or perhaps we envision motivation as the raw use of power delivered in a satisfying and vengeful strike to the ego. 
or maybe we think of it as a tool bag chock full of clever techniques, just underhanded enough to trick people into compliance, but sincere looking enough to maintain a patina of professionalism. And on a good day, maybe our best day, we think of motivation as the ever-popular art of getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. Of course, none of these views is particularly helpful. All lead to behaviors that eventually get us into trouble. Even the last cloyingly patronizing statement, we think it's our job to get people to want what we want, is fraught with problems. It works only if we're omniscient. What we want is always right. Getting to the Root of Motivation Contrary to popular myth, you don't have to wield power or provoke fear to be an effective motivator. In fact, it's better if we don't think of ourselves as larger-than-life figures, burdened with the challenge of bringing the nearly dead back to life through various methods of motivation. That kind of flawed thinking is exactly what gets us into trouble. Let's not forget Melissa from the introduction, the best of the best in the land of flailing fists. She was far too small to intimidate anyone, and rarely, if ever, did she use her formal authority or position power. In fact, the amount of power you have has little to do with how well you motivate others. Remember, we have watched people with almost no authority motivate their bosses' bosses. Motivation, it turns out, is actually rather boring. It has little to do with clout, chutzpah, or even charisma. In fact, motivation is about expectations, information, and communication. Three Approaches to Avoid One thing is for certain, three of the more popular methods, charisma, power, and perks, don't work very well. They all have the potential to change people's view, and so they all have the potential to change people's behavior. Unfortunately, relying on these heavy-handed methods can be dangerous, and rarely sustains behavior over the long run. Yet these methods remain enormously popular. In fact, they hold a nearly sacred place in the current literature. Let's consider each method in turn. Don't rely on charisma. It's time to kill a myth. To be an effective motivator, you don't have to be awe-inspiring. Everyday acts of motivation are almost always subtle, rarely elicit awe, and never make the papers. Nevertheless, the myth of charisma continues to thrive. Books, television programs, and movies positively ooze with scenes that are designed to make audiences gasp with admiration. Charisma makes for good drama, however it has precious little to do with leadership. Rest assured that you don't have to be charismatic to be influential. Don't use power. Let's move on to the next big mistake. Raw power, painfully applied, may move bodies, may even get people to act in new ways, but it rarely moves hearts and minds. Hearts and minds are changed through expanded understanding and new realizations. The flagrant and abusive use of authority, in contrast, guarantees little more than short-term, bitter compliance. Every time we decide to use our power to influence others, particularly if we are gleeful and hasty, we damage the relationship. We move from enjoying a healthy partnership based on trust and mutual respect to establishing a police state that requires constant monitoring. 
Every time we compel people to bend to our will, it creates a desolate and lonely work environment. Gone is mutual respect and the camaraderie it engenders. Gone are the simple pleasantries associated with rubbing shoulders with colleagues who admire and pull for each other. Gone is the sense that we're laboring together to overcome common barriers. It's a horrible thing we do when we decide to routinely unleash our power as a way of motivating. When we do, our relationship with others is forever changed. We move from respected partner to feared enforcer, and then we pay. Be careful with perks. Now for the last of the common motivational errors, the hasty use of extrinsic rewards to motivate what should already be intrinsically motivating. Parents long ago learned not to make this mistake through their failed attempts to reward actions that should be rewarding in and of themselves. For example, if you want your children to read, or better still, love to read, what's the best way to lure them away from TV programs and video games? More than a few parents have chosen to pay their kids to read. The theory is that if you pay them, they'll read, and if they read, they'll learn to love reading. Unfortunately, extrinsic rewards often kill intrinsic satisfaction. These children learn to read for money, not for reading's sake. Then, the minute you remove the cash, they're back at the TV or the video game. Similarly, if you continually use special perks to encourage people to do what should be a routine part of their jobs, in effect perfuming the consequence bundle, you could be undermining or even destroying the satisfaction that comes from doing the job it also takes attention away from the legitimate reasons for the work. When they are applied to routine behavior, extrinsic rewards confuse purpose. Special rewards should be reserved for special performance. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. The Solution the problem with power, perks, and charisma is not that they never work or never should be used. The problem is that people turn to them too quickly, and there are almost always better methods. For instance, savvy parents and influential leaders use their ability to teach. Explore Natural Consequences When you watch people who have been singled out by their bosses, peers, and loved ones as the best at handling crucial confrontations, it should be no surprise to learn that they change people's hearts by changing their minds. Savvy influencers recognize that they could propel people to action by using their leadership authority or offering perks. They also know that within the three domains of self, others, and things, there are other factors that are far better motivators that propel action without the leader pulling strings or making threats. What are these compelling factors? They are the natural consequences associated with any behavior. For example, if you don't manage your diabetes well, you are likely to face amputations later in life. That's a natural consequence. If you fail to follow up on commitments, you create extra stress for your boss, who has to guess what will get done. That's a natural consequence. If you make sarcastic and cutting comments when your spouse isn't feeling amorous, 
She will withdraw and feel less spontaneous affection for you, despite what your lizard brain is telling you. That's a natural consequence. All our social actions put into play a chain of events that affects anywhere from one person to millions of other people. This sequence of events makes up the consequence bundle. Among these consequences, there is a subset of natural consequences that exist independently of the intervention of an authority figure. These methods require no force, no chutzpah, and no charisma. No parent has to wag a finger. No boss has to write up a disciplinary action. Natural consequences are always present and always serve as a potential source of motivation. Make the invisible visible. When it comes to exploring natural consequences, your primary job is to help others see consequences they aren't seeing or remembering on their own. That happens because many of the outcomes associated with a particular behavior are long-term or occur out of sight. Your job is to help make the invisible visible. Here are six methods for doing that. Link to existing values. As you consider all the consequences you could discuss with another person, turn your attention to that person's core values. What does he or she care about the most? This will be your point of greatest leverage. Then help the other person see how his or her values will be better realized through the course you are proposing. If you have created enough safety, you can talk frankly about any value issues. Connect short-term benefits with long-term pain. Show how the short-term enjoyment the person currently is experiencing is inextricably connected to longer-term problems. This is essentially the central task of parenting. If you continue to watch television and don't do your homework, you'll get bad grades, you won't get into a good school, you won't get a good job, you won't make lots of money, and you'll never drive your own Porsche. You might not use these exact words, but this is at least part of the map you're carrying in your head and the map you'd like your child to share eventually, except maybe the part about the fancy car. This method of clarifying long-term or distant negative consequences is also applied at work dozens of times a day. I'm sure it's a hassle to double-check appointments when you enter them on my calendar, but our current error rate is so high that the assistants of the other vice presidents are calling me to ask for confirmation. I worry that your reputation here is going to be hurt if we can't solve this. Place the focus on long-term benefits. This is the other half of parenting. It's also the single best predictor of lifelong success. If a person can suffer a little now, delaying gratification in order to serve a longer-term goal, life gets better. Think dieting, weightlifting, studying, etc. If you doubt this premise, consider a study conducted over a matter of decades. Researchers put a marshmallow in front of individual children and told them that they would get another one if they didn't eat the first one while the researcher stepped out. As the researchers tracked these children over the years, they found that those who had waited for the researchers to return did far better in life than those who ate the confection right away and in almost every domain. To help people stay the course, take the focus off the short-term challenge by placing it on the long-term benefit. Connect to existing carrots and sticks. This is typically not the best starting place, 
but eventually you may want to talk about rewards. Help others see how living up to an expectation advances their careers, enhances their influence, puts more money in the bank, or reduces their risks. You've mentioned wanting to be the art director. In my view, you will be much more successful in that position, and more likely to get it, if you have solid working relationships with both the editing staff and the video team. Stay in dialogue. Remember, as you're doing your best to make consequences more visible, stay in dialogue. Keep the information flowing honestly and freely in both directions. Watch for the line between dialogue and threats. There's a fine line between sharing natural consequences and threatening others. Well, in most cases, it's not that fine a line. If your motives are wrong, sharing becomes threatening. If your motive is to punish, or if you're taking pleasure in describing the awful things that will happen if someone's obnoxious behavior continues, you are the problem. Your motive must be to solve the problem in a way that benefits both of you. Anything less than that will provoke silence or violence, not gain willing compliance. The line becomes finer when your motives are right, but the other person mistakes your description of natural consequences for a threat. When you fail to complete your assignments on time, we start giving you less relevant assignments to protect ourselves from failure. Can sound like a personal attack or a job threat. If the other person believes that he or she is in trouble, perhaps because of previous experience with other bosses, your best behavior may seem manipulative regardless of your skill or demeanor. If you notice that others appear nervous, step out of the conversation and restore safety by explaining your positive intentions. Explain that your goal is to solve an important problem. You simply want to share the consequences of what they're doing and then ask them for their view on the matter. When they start hearing natural consequences as threats, you should recognize it as a safety problem, not an insurmountable barrier to dialogue. Listen to others' view of natural consequences. When it comes to other people's roles, you should be listening as they explain their view of the consequences. They may be aware of factors you know little or nothing about. Yeah, we can do it the way you want, but it'll blow up our lawn more. Your view of what should be done may change in the process of jointly discussing consequences. In the end, you may be convinced that they shouldn't do what you originally asked. Stop when you reach critical mass. As you help others see consequences they didn't realize existed, explain those consequences only until you reach critical mass. Stop once you believe others will comply. Your job isn't to keep piling on information. It is to share consequences until the other person understands the overall effect and shares your view of what needs to be done. Don't sell past the close. Match methods to circumstances. Let's look at the final element of making a task motivating. It has to do with the circumstances you're facing. Sometimes the person you're talking to is simply unaware of the consequences associated with his or her actions. Sometimes you yourself don't understand why the other person isn't motivated. Or perhaps he or she's partially motivated, but the task just hasn't made it to the top of his or her priority list. Maybe the other person's openly resisting your efforts. Let's learn to match method to circumstance. When you're teaching, 
The methods for explaining natural consequences we've just examined are easy to apply when we're first informing people about the reason behind a specific action. Employees want to know why they have to produce products and deliver services by using certain methods, particularly if what you're asking isn't going to be easy. What they really want to know is whether it's really worth it. As we suggested earlier, effective problem solvers are teachers, and much of their teaching is about the consequences to varying stakeholders. Here's why it's worth it. They make the invisible visible by whatever means work. They do this to avoid gaps. When you're jointly exploring. This circumstance comes up more often than you might imagine. The other person isn't exactly motivated, and neither of you is quite sure why. Perhaps the other person knows why, but isn't saying. In either case, you can't figure out why the other person isn't motivated, and you'll need to examine the motivational role of self, others, and things to determine which ones are making the task undesirable. The idea here is to examine each area with simple questions. Is the job hard to do? Is it repetitive, boring, uncomfortable, and so on? Is that why you don't want to do it? Are others encouraging you not to do it? Finally, is the task at odds with what the other person is getting rewarded for? The goal of exploring consequences is to bring to the surface the issues that make the task undesirable. If it's not immediately clear, this could take some work. Once you're both aware of the factors that are at play, decide if you still want the other person to continue. You may change your mind. If you decide that the task still makes sense, use any combination of the methods we've described for making the consequences visible. When others resist. Let's consider a more challenging case. Individuals are openly resisting your efforts. They really don't want to do the task. They need to be convinced and you need to be careful not to create resistance. That means you'll need to know how to explain why something has to be done without jumping straight to power or discipline. Now what? This is the discussion people have in mind when they say that those they work and live with are hard to motivate. Others fight me at every turn. Fortunately, the basic principle is the same. Explain natural consequences until the person genuinely agrees to comply. In this case, it's a delicate search. You keep searching for consequences until you find one the other person values. Here are examples. Come on, I have better things to do than get my expense reports in the day I get back. We found that the longer people drag it out, the less accurate their reports are. They often forget small expenses and it costs them money. Consequences to the employee. I've got a good memory. It also causes trouble for the people in accounting. They have their own deadlines and goals. If we wait too long, it throws them off. Consequences to co-workers. Big deal. Let them suffer once in a while. I'm the one on the road half my life. When you don't get your bills in, we don't bill our clients as quickly. Last year, we figure late billing cost the company over $200,000. Consequences to shareholders. We made a bazillion dollars last year. When you drag out your reports for a couple of weeks, I get a call and I have to track you down and hold these kinds of conversations. It's not how I want to spend my time. 
consequences to the boss. Hmm, I didn't realize I was making more work for you. Sorry. From now on, I'll put a reminder in my electronic calendar, and it'll keep me on track. This conversation calls for both patience and skill. The person really doesn't want to do what you're asking, and it takes a genuine consequence search to come up with something that motivates him or her. You have to search because not every consequence matters to everyone. In this example, the employee didn't care about anything until the boss talked about how it was inconveniencing him or her, which, by the way, implies the use of power. When to use discipline. Despite your best efforts, sometimes you still have to start down the path of discipline. Perhaps the other person has done something that requires immediate action. Maybe your son crossed the line from resisting your efforts to being disrespectful and insulting. Maybe you've explained consequences and the other person isn't going to do what you ask, no matter what you say. Perhaps you've had multiple conversations describing content, pattern, and relationship, but the employee is still violating every agreement you make. It's time to change tactics. It's time to move away from natural consequences and start imposing consequences of your own, discipline. As you start down this precarious path, keep the following in mind. Know the mechanics. Every organization has its own discipline steps and policies. Study them carefully. If you fail to follow procedure, your efforts may be thrown out when they are reviewed, undermining your credibility. Families should create their own clear disciplinary steps as well. If they do not, everything comes as a surprise. Partner with people in authority. If you're in a situation in which you don't know the person's total history and details, explain why the action was wrong, state that you're going to move to discipline, and say that you'll get back to him or her later. Then check with specialists to learn what the actual steps should be. Otherwise, you may suggest that you're going to send the person home without pay, and then find out that he or she was only due for a warning. You'll have to eat your words. The home version of this should be obvious. Parents must be unified in their actions. Be appropriately somber. Discipline isn't something you impose with a sense of pleasure, regardless of what the other person may have done. Keep the tone serious and speak about what has to be done, not what you now get to do. This is not a time for a smug, in-your-face celebration. You're moving from partnering to policing, and that's hardly a victory. Explain the next step. As you explain what will happen as a result of the infraction, Cover what will happen if the person does the same thing again. Explaining the next level of consequences informs and motivates. It also helps eliminate surprises. Nobody said I was going to be fired! Be consistent. Don't play favorites. If you're working with an employee who gives you fits at every turn, you can't discipline that person for something you wouldn't discipline everyone for simply as a means of getting even. When discipline falls under review, the first thing third parties examine is equity. Did the person get fair treatment? Don't single people out. Don't back off under pressure. Once you've started the process, stick to it. Follow the steps and don't be dissuaded simply because the person puts up a fight. 
If discipline is called for, stay the course. If you waffle, you'll gain a reputation for making hollow threats. When power fails, be candid about coping. Let's look at one final issue. What if you've explained the natural consequences associated with an action, but others still aren't motivated, and you can't or shouldn't impose consequences to increase their motivation? Let's say your boss realizes he should stop yelling at you and others, but says the following. I know it's wrong, I know it frustrates people, but I'm high-strung and under a lot of pressure, and it's just going to happen sometimes. Now what? You're not likely to impose consequences on your boss. Or let's say your business partner has been unreliable in getting assignments in on time, and after a lengthy discussion, you still believe it's likely she'll get them in late. What do you do? Agree on a workaround. When you've decided not to administer discipline as a way of compelling someone to change his or her actions, develop a coping strategy and then candidly share it. That way, as the other person observes and experiences the consequences of the work around, he or she can choose to act differently if he or she wants to avoid the pain, waste, and inefficiency you've talked about. For instance, from this point on, you will not give your unreliable partner critical path assignments. She may not be happy about this choice because she wants to be involved with the hottest assignments. Nevertheless, at least she understands why you're doing what you're doing. With an emotionally explosive boss who refuses to change, you might suggest that when he blows off steam, you'll eventually withdraw, allow time for him to calm down, and then return for a healthier and more complete discussion. You might also share that you are likely to be reluctant to challenge some of his more vigorous arguments. You'll do your best to be candid, but his defensive actions will continue to make that difficult for you. By being candid about your coping strategy, you empower your boss to choose whether he wants this consequence bundle. This point is so important that we want to expand it a bit. For people to behave badly over the long haul, we have to do two things. First, we have to avoid crucial confrontations. By doing that, we avoid helping others see the consequences of their behavior. If we don't alter their expectations, why should they change what they do? Second, we create a workaround that enables others to continue doing what they're doing, unaware and guilt-free. For example, our boss never returns calls, and so we secretly assign someone to do it for her. A doctor is incompetent, and so we discreetly schedule complicated surgeries for when he's off-shift. Our dad is grumpy and abusive, and so we buy him his own widescreen TV and build him a den. The reason others aren't motivated to change is often because of us. We're conspirators. Either we misuse power and mobilize others' resistance, or we withhold honest feedback and then take great pains to create clever and secret workarounds that continue to keep others blind to the consequences they're causing. Even if you don't have the power to impose your will on an unwilling person, you can avoid being part of the problem by being candid about your coping strategy. Chapter 5. Make it easy. How to make keeping commitments almost painless. It's time to move to the ability side of our model. We'll start with an example. 
Kyle, a political analyst who works for you, was supposed to write a position paper for an upcoming debate and have it on your desk by noon, but he didn't. You call him in for a private discussion and describe the gap. He lets you know that he really wanted to do what he promised and says that it wasn't his fault that he didn't. The specialist who conducts the statistical analysis was hospitalized with a burst appendix, and she's the only one who understands the data. In any case, Kyle was prevented from doing what he agreed to do. And then he did exactly the right thing. He immediately called to let you know about the problem, but you were in a meeting across town. He left a message on your voicemail and then tried to track you down. In short, he wasn't able to meet his commitment and did his best to let you know. This was definitely not a motivation problem. Don't misdiagnose. Having just read the last chapter, you decide it would be a good idea to tell Kyle about the natural consequences of missing the deadline. You figure that he needs to know. Let me tell you something. If people ask the wrong questions at the debate, we're going to look like a bunch of dopes because we don't have the position paper. Kyle turns ashen white, mumbles something about tracking down the specialist, and dashes off like a scared rabbit. Now he's really motivated you think to yourself. We hope you wouldn't actually do this. Being the steely-eyed, smart person you are, you would note that Kyle was motivated to do the job. Piling on more reasons for doing something he wasn't able to do in the first place would be the wrong cure. Indeed, it would be cruel. Kyle needs help removing the barriers he's facing, not a kick in the pants, and so that's where we'll turn. What does it take to help others remove any and all barriers they face? Better still, what can we do to make it easy, even painless, for others to complete their assignments? In the short run, if a task is undesirable but not impossible, we can crank up the pressure and get the job done. Over the long run, we want to find a way to remove some of the factors that make the job undesirable or we'll constantly be looking for ways to motivate people to do what they hate doing. And that's never fun. Motivation and ability can be confused. Here's another concept to keep in mind. When diagnosing the cause, we have to be dead certain that we haven't confused motivation and ability. As completely different as the two things are, People don't always make it easy for us to tell whether they don't want to do what's been asked or can't do it. In fact, we pretty much assume that if we ask nicely enough, people will tell us straight out whether they couldn't complete an assignment, they wouldn't, or both. Masked Cause Believe it or not, sometimes people purposely hide the genuine source of a problem. If they fear that they'll get in trouble for not being able or not wanting to do what's been asked, they may stretch the truth to avoid new problems. For example, an attending physician asks a medical student to insert an intravenous line into the chest of a 75-year-old patient. The student isn't quite sure how to do it, but when the doctor is called away to work on a cardiac arrest, the student says nothing. Instead, he attempts to insert the line and punctures the sac around the woman's lung, and the patient later dies of related complications. A woman dies because the student is uncomfortable saying that he just might be unable to do what he's been asked. This actually happened. 
Probably the most common form of masking takes place when people cover up their lack of motivation with a bogus ability problem. This often occurs when a person figures the boss doesn't really care what happens, but then the boss shows up wanting to know why the job wasn't done. Suddenly, an ability block sounds better than saying, I didn't make it a priority. Thus, people come up with whoppers like these. I would have been here for the early meeting, but my alarm didn't go off. I would have mowed the yard before your lawn party, but was wondering if maybe I should cut it shorter than usual. It's important to listen carefully to the answers to your diagnostic questions. When John states, It's got all those fancy numbers and charts and things. Not that I couldn't do if I wanted to. A careful person might continue probing about difficulty, making it safe for John to say that he has trouble with the directions. In responding to bogus motivation problems, it's common to give the person the benefit of the doubt the first time. So what are you going to do to ensure that your alarm goes off next time? If excuses keep cropping up, you have to deal with the pattern, as in this example. This is the third time you've run into some kind of problem. We've been patient, but the fact is, you have to make those early meetings. The last five times I asked you to do a chore around the house, you agreed, I left on an errand, and then you came up with questions and didn't do the job. Your job, make it easy. Let's say you've diagnosed the cause and the other person can complete the task, but it's really horrible and tedious. Now what? It's your job to help remove the barrier. It's your job to help make it easy. Unfortunately, not everyone agrees with this. In fact, some people take pride in their ability to inspire others to complete noxious or tedious tasks. In truth, there is no great honor in being a leader or parent who is able to encourage people to continually achieve the nearly impossible. It can be gratifying to be an effective motivator, but the best leaders don't simply inspire people to continue to do the gut-wrenching, mind-boggling, and noxious. They help people find ways to ease the gut-wrenching, simplify the mind-boggling, and nullify the noxious. This is where influence masters truly shine. They see themselves as facilitators, enablers, and supporters, not armed guards or cheerleaders. This self-image may go further in separating the best from the rest than does any skill they actually possess. Skilled problem-solvers take pride in helping others make things easy. It's part of their golden rule. It's what they do. Less skilled and more controlling folks have a different view of their role. They get people to do whatever it takes at whatever the cost and then brag about their leadership prowess. For them, making other people's burdens less burdensome is a sign of weakness. The home version of this attitude isn't any more attractive. For instance, getting your spouse to open up about a sensitive issue by piling on a truckload of guilt and manipulation. Why would anyone ever want to do such a thing? Because it's a power trip, and some people love power more than they love relationships or even results. Believing that it's praiseworthy to be able to compel people to complete tasks that are painful paints an intriguing yet counterintuitive picture of leadership. After all, human beings are forever finding ways to avoid pain and seek pleasure, not the other way around. 
Distasteful tasks may be good for people at some level, and it's true that employees are generally getting paid to do them. But if they're normal human beings, they're going to try to find a way to get out of dreadful jobs, or at least make them easier. Don't most of us use automatic garage door openers, punch TV remote control buttons, and open cans with a gadget of some kind? We don't need any of these things, but they make life easier. It's important to make this distinction between necessity and convenience because we must be comfortable with the idea that it's okay for people to want to find an easier, more convenient way to do a job. Tools for making it easy. Jointly explore barriers. Knowing what to do with an ability barrier is actually fairly simple. Jointly explore the underlying ability blocks and remove them. That's easy. In contrast, knowing how to remove those barriers requires our attention. That means we need to know if others can't do something because of self, they don't have the skills or knowledge, others, friends, family, or co-workers are withholding information or material, or things, the world around them is structured poorly. But before we consider the ability side of our six-source model, we'll have to break years of bad habits. Avoid quick advice. When we hear that someone faces an ability barrier, we habitually jump in with suggestions. We don't even think about it. We're experienced and we understand how things work, and so when we see a problem, we roll up our sleeves and fix things. It's positively Pavlovian. We see a problem and, bing, the gate is up and our tongues are off and running. Involvement both enables and motivates. If you involve others in solving problems, two important things happen. First, you get to hear their ideas. People may not know exactly what to do, but they probably have a good idea about what doesn't work. Actually, they may know exactly what to do, but need materials or permission to do it. In any case, start ability discussions with a simple question, You've been working on the problem. What do you think needs to be done? Ask them for their ideas. Invite them to put their theories, thoughts, and feelings on the table. They'll start to identify the barriers cell by cell. When people aren't completely certain about what to do, or if it becomes clear that they don't understand the situation fully, it's perfectly legitimate to chime in with what you think might help. Of course, how you toss in ideas makes a big difference. Style counts. The feeling of the conversation should be one of partnering. You're working together as intellectual equals, both of you throwing in your thoughts. Motivate. There's an important secondary benefit to involving others. When people are involved in coming up with a potential solution, they're more likely to be motivated to implement it, and that's important. Most problems have multiple solutions. The effectiveness of a solution depends on the accuracy of the chosen tactic. That's obvious. It's equally important that the person implementing the tactic believe in it. That's where commitment comes into play. A solution that is tactically inferior but has the full commitment of those who implement it may be more effective than one that is tactically superior but is resisted by those who have to make it work. Let's be clear about what we're proposing. 
Many people argue that the reason for involving others is to trick them into thinking the ideas are their own so that they'll work harder to implement them. We're not suggesting that you manipulate people into thinking that your ideas are theirs. Involving others is not a cheap trick. We're simply proposing that other people do have ideas, that getting them out in the open is to everyone's advantage, and that when people are involved in the entire thought process, they see why things need to be done a certain way and are motivated to do it that way. By involving others, you empower them. You provide them with both the means and the motive to overcome problems. Start by asking for ideas. Involving people is better than merely telling people. But how should you do that? This is quite simple. When we first trained people to deal with ability problems, it all seemed so simple. You ask others for their ideas, you get to hear their best thoughts, and they feel empowered. What could be easier? Who could possibly mess this up? As it turns out, there are several ways to go wrong. Here are the top three things not to do. Don't bias the response. As we trained people with these materials over the years, many participants would try to involve the others in resolving an ability problem in the following way. So you haven't been able to get in touch with the lawyers. Here's an idea. Drive over to their office and wait until they return. What do you think? People who choose this tactic understand only half of the concept of empowerment. As long as they give the other person a chance to disagree, they feel okay. Unfortunately, when you're speaking from a power base, offering up your idea first and then asking for the other person's approval misses the mark. You're likely to bias the other person. First, you're filling his or her head with your idea, and this can cut off new thinking. Second, you may inadvertently be sending the message that your idea is what you really want, and so others are not about to disagree with you. Don't pretend to involve. This mistake in involving other people in solving an ability barrier is propelled by two forces. First, you already have an idea and would prefer to implement it without involving others. Second, you believe that you now have to involve others because it's the politically correct thing to do. Here's what you come up with. You simply pretend to involve others by asking for their ideas, after which you subtly manipulate them to come around to your way of thinking. As you might suspect, this technique comes off as glaringly manipulative. It looks more like sending a rat through a maze and periodically throwing it a pellet for making the correct turn than like a legitimate effort to involve another human being in removing an ability barrier. Don't feel the need to have all the answers. This mistake is the product of low confidence and a bad idea. Newly appointed leaders are often unwilling to ask their direct reports for their thoughts because these leaders believe that if they don't appear to know everything about the job, they'll look incompetent. In their view, asking for ideas isn't a smart tactic, it's a sign of weakness. When they are facing an employee with an ability problem, the newly appointed do their best to share their insights. The last thing they want to do is query an employee who not only reports to them, but obviously needs help. Of all the bad ideas circulating the grapevine, pretending that leaders must know everything is among the most ridiculous and harmful. Leaders earn their keep not by knowing everything, 
but by knowing how to bring together the right combination of people, most of whom know a great deal more about certain topics than the leader will ever know, and propel them toward common objectives. Confident leaders are very comfortable saying, It beats me. Does anyone know the answer to that? Or, I don't know, but I can find out. Advise where necessary. Our goal has been to collaborate with the other person in bringing to the surface and resolving ability blocks. We don't want to rush into solutions too quickly or force our ideas onto others. Besides, as we've argued all along, the people closest to a problem are likely to see more barriers than anyone else can. Nevertheless, there are times when people do need help. They can't see the barriers that have them stymied. In this case, it is our job to teach and advise, to point out stumbling blocks. In short, our job is to make invisible barriers more visible. Pop the question. As you finish a crucial confrontation, there's a danger that despite your efforts to bring to the surface all the causes behind an ability problem, you still have unfinished business. The person still isn't motivated. How could that happen? This typically occurs when you describe the problem and the person immediately identifies an ability barrier. People tend to point to ability issues because they're less threatening. Never mind the fact that they also have conflicting priorities. That brings us to our point. The fact that people start by identifying an ability block doesn't guarantee that once it's removed, they'll want to do what they've promised to do. Once you've finished identifying and removing ability barriers, pop the question. Ask, If I get the work up to you by 2 o'clock, are you willing to do what it takes to finish the job by 5? Or is there something else I need to know? Popping the question means that you end a discussion of ability by checking for motivation. Of course, it goes both ways. If a person starts with, Do you really want me to do that? It's such a pain and you spend time explaining the natural consequences until he or she agrees to comply, there's a chance the person may also be facing an ability barrier or two. Once the person has agreed to comply, pop the question. Check for ability problems. It sounds like you're willing to do this, but is there anything standing in your way? Is there anything else we need to deal with, or can I count on you having this to me by Tuesday at nine? Once you've dealt with motivation, check ability. If you start with ability, check motivation. Remember to pop the question. Make it safe for others to search. Let's end our discussion of ability problems by considering a difficult case. You want to brainstorm root causes with another person, but don't have the authority to do so. For instance, your boss promises to give you a hand with customers during peak hours, but he's routinely unavailable when you need him. Are you really going to have to motivate your boss to live up to his promise? Is that what's going on? One thing is certain, you want to get to the root cause. Does he dislike helping out because he doesn't like working with hostile customers? Does he think the work is beneath him? Are other priorities more important? Has he forgotten how to do the job? You don't know what's actually going on here. Your only goal is to talk to your boss, identify the real forces behind his not helping, and learn if the problem is going to go away or if you're going to have to find a way to live with it.
That means you have to encourage your boss to join with you as you jointly brainstorm reasons he isn't doing what he promised to do. Or if you're in a real hurry, you could just step in front of a moving train. Ask for permission. We've talked about this before. If you lack the authority to require another person to discuss root causes, you can do so only by permission. So ask for it. If you do have the authority, ask for it anyway. Since we agree on the problem, could we take a few minutes to talk about what's in the way of solving it? I'd like to be as helpful as I can in making it easy to avoid the problem in the future. Would that be okay? Ask for feedback. Perhaps the most gracious way to open the door to a complete discussion of underlying causes is to ask if you are adding to the problem. When you take responsibility for your contribution, you make it safe for other people to do the same thing. My goal is to solve the problem. I'm particularly interested in learning about anything I might be doing to contribute to the challenges you face. Prime the pump. People often feel unsafe discussing root causes because they fear that any analysis will make them look weak or selfish. If they're not able, that's bad. If they're not motivated, that may look worse. You need to change this view. Your job in leading a root cause discussion is to let others know that you see them as people of worth who are currently unable to do what's expected. This isn't about fixing their character. It's about fixing a problem. One of the best ways to assure others that you're not going to get angry when you learn the root cause is to prime the pump or take your best guess at possible causes without looking stressed, miffed, or judgmental. This helps others start the flow of information by making it safe for them to speak honestly. Priming works only if you take your best guess in a way that tells the other person that you're okay with him or her admitting to what you just described. Word choice, body language, and tone of voice make a huge difference. Consider the following question. Is that too hard for you? Now read the line in a patronizing way. Next, do it in anger. To draw on your real talents, read the line with sarcasm. Finally, try to be respectful. Imagine that this is a person you care about and genuinely want to help. How does that affect your delivery? When it is done well, priming provides others with real-time, visible evidence that you're not going to demean or criticize them for honestly discussing the real issues. In short, your success depends on whether you see other people as human beings or villains. If you've come to see others as people you want to help succeed, most of the time you'll do just fine. Chapter 6. Stay Focused and Flexible what to do when others get sidetracked, scream, or sulk. Up to this point, we've created a map showing how to master a crucial confrontation. It describes key principles and skills, not fixed roads laid down on an unmovable terrain. This means that the principles and skills have to be woven into a workable script on the spot as the conversation unfolds. This on-the-spot creativity calls for an enormous amount of flexibility. After we describe the gap, we have to diagnose what's happening. Are people failing to come through because of a motivation problem, or is it ability? Otherwise, we're likely to charge in blindly and apply the wrong prefabricated fix.
I can't believe that you came to our biggest meeting of the year a full thirty minutes late. Oh, your mom's funeral, huh? That was awkward. It gets worse. Not only do we have to work unrehearsed and on the fly, we have to be flexible enough to deal with new problems as they seem to appear out of nowhere. We're talking about problem X and problem Y emerges right there on the spot. For instance, you're talking to a co-worker about doing his fair share of the workload, and he becomes angry. You're chatting with your daughter about failing to practice the piano, and she lies to you. You're talking to an employee about missing a deadline, and he becomes insubordinate. You're talking to your unemployed husband about actively looking for work, and he tries to divert you from the problem by playing the martyr. Your head accountant clams up when you ask her why the end-of-the-month reports aren't ready. Then she gets angry. All these situations present you with new, emergent problems. We must be focused and flexible. As new problems emerge, we have to be focused enough not to get sidetracked. We can't let every breeze blow us in a different direction. By the same token, we have to be flexible enough to step away from the current issue and deal with the new problems on the spot if necessary. When a brand new problem with a life of its own comes up in the middle of a crucial confrontation, we have to decide. Do we step away from the current problem, putting a bookmark in place so that we can get back to it later, and address the new problem? Or do we stay the course? This takes us back to the issue we addressed in Chapter 1. What is the right crucial confrontation? Now we're introducing the idea that the right confrontation can change before your eyes. The answer to this new if question is simple. If the new emergent problem is more serious, time-sensitive, or emotional than the original one, or if it's important to the other person, you have to deal with it right there on the spot. You can't allow the new and more important issue to be at the mercy of the original problem. For example, you can't have your daughter lying to you. Lying is worse than missing practice. You can't allow an employee to become insubordinate. If you don't say something right away, you undermine your credibility. You can't allow a person to fume and boil and pretend nothing is happening. It'll only get worse. The good news is that if you choose to move to the new and emergent topic, all the skills we've looked at so far are applicable. Of course, if you decide to deal with the new problem, you need to do so in a focused way. Don't be tricked into getting sidetracked and don't drift aimlessly from topic to topic. Carefully transition when you change your focus. Four different emergent problems and how to address them. To see how this works, let's look at four different categories of new problems. There is a loss of safety. There is a loss of trust. A completely different issue becomes a problem and explosive emotions take over. Each category requires the same basic skills, but each is different enough that it deserves careful and separate attention. People feel unsafe. This is the most common emergent problem, and we talked about it earlier. You're discussing a failed promise, and the other person becomes frightened and starts to pull away from the discussion or push too hard. Either response brings honest dialogue to a screeching halt. 
Fear and the resulting silence or violence are the emergent problem. If you don't step out of the existing conversation and establish safety, you're never going to resolve the issue at hand. So that's what you do. You step out, create safety, and step back in. In this case, you don't need to acknowledge a change in topic because you aren't changing topics. You're simply dealing with the real problem, which is not the topic itself, but the fact that the other person feels unsafe discussing it. To restore safety, you point to your shared purpose. You assure the other person that you care about what he or she cares about. You use contrasting to clarify the misunderstanding. You apologize when necessary. You make it safe. If you don't, you'll never be able to resolve the original issue. People violate your trust. This is probably the most dangerous new problem, the number one killer of accountability, and the chief reason most people can't have a crucial confrontation without breaking out in hives. When family members allow one another to break promises and ignore the consequences, pain and suffering are just around the corner. When it comes to child-rearing, arbitrary accountability is a big contributor to delinquency and insecurity. Giving family members the luxury of arbitrarily choosing which promises they'll keep, turning life into a cafeteria of commitments in which people can keep one of this one but not one of those, drives people insane. The Intersection of Flexibility and Focus Let's be realistic. Things do come up. In today's tumultuous world, changes occur all the time, and if you can't make mid-course corrections as new information pours in, your company will die. You have to be strong and flexible. You have to be able to bend but not break. How can you be at once focused and flexible? It's actually easy. At the heart of every workable accountability system, there is one simple sentence. If something comes up, let me know as soon as you can. This sentence represents the marriage of flexibility and focus. In these twelve words, two seemingly contradictory elements form a perfect harmony, the yin and yang of accountability. Although the words are sparse, to speak them is to say, I want you to live up to your promise. Please don't unilaterally break it. I want you to focus on getting the job done. At the same time, I realize that the world can change. Things come up. Many of these barriers will negate your existing promise. If something does come up, let me know as soon as possible so there are no surprises and so we can decide together how to handle the situation. Consider the following situations. Sometimes the thing that comes up will affect motivation. For example, your son is on the way to take a make-up algebra test after school and his uncle stops him along the route and asks him to go to the movies. He's been lonely since his divorce, and your son thinks he should go along, so he wants to change his priority, but not without talking. Together, you should decide if his uncle really needs the familial support, or if he needs to keep his grades up, or maybe you can find a way to do both. Sometimes the thing that comes up will affect ability. For instance, the air conditioning unit breaks down and the production manager thinks she should let everyone go home early even though she promised to finish a project. This may be the right solution, but she should first check with the major stakeholders, in this case her boss, to see if this is the best solution for the situation. 
Maybe, based on the reasons for the deadline and the costs of missing it, it makes better business sense to pay the service experts overtime plus a surcharge to get the equipment fixed right away. With a policy of, if something comes up, let me know as soon as you can, we should expect pretty immediate communication. Thanks to modern technology, when we say, let's talk as soon as you can, that can be pretty fast. Between email, voicemail, and cell phones, we are always no farther away from each other than the speed of light and the click of a button. To put this in perspective, you can track someone down in China about a hundred million times faster than Marco Polo. The Foundation of Crucial Confrontations Let's return to our friend who told us that he didn't attend the computer class because something came up. What should we say to him? Naturally, the way we approach the failed promise will depend on our own private history of accountability. If in our company promises are merely rough guidelines, include the possibility of a surprise, or are made with a wink, we've reaped what we've sown. There's really not much we can say. In fact, in a huge number of companies, and families are no different, the following is true. Results equal no results plus a good story. In institutions where accountability is shaky, people treat you as if you've succeeded as long as you have a good story. In this inventive culture, failure accompanied by a plausible excuse equals success. And we all know what the good story is. Something came up. It's the catch-all story. It keeps you from ever being held accountable. That is, if friends, family, bosses, and co-workers actually let you get away with it, but you know better. You understand that a crucial confrontation, by definition, deals with failed promises, and if you don't have to keep promises, everything falls apart. You also know that things change, and so if there is a need to change, talk as soon as you can. Therefore, when you first started working with your team, you spoke in great detail about the all-important sentence, If something comes up, let me know as soon as you can. You explained how these few words, when honored, bring predictability into a turbulent world. You spoke eloquently about how this simple phrase emphasizes the importance of both the need for flexibility and the need for predictability. You talked about how it forms the very foundation of trust. And finally, when you first talked with your direct report about attending the computer class, you ended by reaffirming your stance. You said, by the way, if something comes up, let me know as soon as you can. And you meant it. Dealing with Anger When other people become angry, there is always the chance that they will become violent. They've stepped over one line, will they step over the next one? Fortunately, most bosses never face anything close to danger at work, at least not from employees. People go to silence more than they go to violence. They complain to their loved ones, they play the martyr and despise you, they carp and seethe, but they don't explode. Nevertheless, there are exceptions. That's why you must determine how dangerous the situation is. No listening skill or anger reduction technique will overcome a person who is chasing you around the desk with a letter opener. Don't be a hero. If you think you're in danger, leave. Remove yourself from the situation. Take flight, don't fight.
then call the appropriate authorities. In most companies, that's security or human resources. Let your boss know what happened. Don't even think about dealing with the danger yourself. Second, dissipate the emotion. If you're not in danger, go straight to the emotion. Don't deal with the argument per se. If someone came to you strung out on drugs, you wouldn't dream of talking to that person about a work-related problem without first dealing with the chemical influence. It's ludicrous to assume that you can have a rational argument with a person who is under the influence of mood-altering stimuli. Anger creates a similarly inflated and abnormal reaction. Anger-based chemicals are legal, of course, but they prepare the body to spring into action, and that doesn't mean talking politely. Therefore, don't deal with the content of the argument until you've dealt with the emotion. The other person isn't very likely to listen to you, or, for that matter, explain his or her own argument clearly and calmly, until the chemical surge has subsided. Any argument you make won't be heard. Any suggestions you offer are likely to come across as an assault. Stifle your desire to jump into the content of the argument. Instead, dissipate the emotion. But how? What does it take to douse internal fires that have been fueled by unhealthy stories? Common but not good practices. Dealing with anger nose-to-nose, -nose, so to speak, is tremendously hard, so hard that it's almost impossible to find someone who does a good job of it. Here are three things not to do. Don't get hooked. Left to our natural tendencies, most of us respond to anger in kind. We get hooked. We become the very monsters we're facing. But then again, why should we expect anything else? Someone who believes that a core value has been violated becomes angry. He or she hurls that anger in our faces, violating one or more of our core values. We become angry in response. Don't one-up. It's hard to imagine that anyone would treat anger with smug indifference, but it happens. An employee barks, That's the third time in a row accounting has screwed up my check. The boss strikes back with, Big deal. When I held your job, I had to walk six blocks to pick up my pay. There was a time when I didn't get a red cent for almost two months, and that was over Christmas, no less. You've got it easy. When other people become angry, they want first to talk about and then to resolve their problem, not yours. They certainly don't want to be told that their problem can't compete with your lengthy and impressive history of disappointments and disasters. Don't patronize. Acting holier than thou really doesn't work, as this example shows. One of your direct reports charges into your office and complains, What was Larry trying to do in that meeting? He humiliated me in front of everyone. You come back with, Now, now, quit throwing a childish tantrum. If you expect to talk to me, you'll need to act like an adult. Or you might say, I can see you're out of control. Here's a dollar. Go get a cup of coffee and return when you're under control. Telling people to calm down or grow up throws gas on the flames of violated values. They're already fuming about being mistreated, 
and then you heap on more abuse. You patronize them. Your tone tells them that you think you're superior, and as if this isn't bad enough, you act as if you're their confidant, giving them helpful advice. Third, explore the other person's path to action. When someone becomes noticeably emotional, we see only the action that comes out at the end of their path. In fact, all we can ever see is anyone's action or behavior. Everything else, feelings, stories, and observations, gets trapped inside. Mirror to encourage. When you're talking to emotionally charged people, you may want to do more than simply ask them to talk. You may want to bring in a bigger gun, mirroring. Here's how it works. Say Tom, one of your direct reports, sat glumly in a meeting, said nothing, and looked discouraged. Normally, Tom is upbeat and contributes a lot to the conversation. As the meeting ends, you find yourself alone with Tom, and so you start with a simple probe. Are you feeling okay? In truth, he's not. He's upset and a little embarrassed. Over the last year, Tom has put on 30 pounds, and people have taken to calling him Big Guy. You started the meeting by praising the Big Guy for his recent accomplishments. Your praise, wrapped in a negative label, hurt Tom's feelings. However, when you ask him, he's reluctant to say anything. After all, you were the boss, and it's sort of embarrassing. So he comes back with, Well, uh, I'm, uh... I'm feeling just fine. Only he says it in a tone of voice and with a body posture that communicate exactly the opposite. To encourage Tom to open up, you hold a mirror up to him. That is, describe the inconsistency between what he just said and how he just said it. You know, the way you said that makes me wonder if you are okay. You seem kind of, I don't know, low energy, maybe a bit glum. Are you sure you're okay? What you're trying to do, of course, is make it safe for Tom to talk. By holding up a mirror, you're letting him know that you're concerned and that his brush-off wasn't taken at face value. Once again, you're trying to open up a conversation, not compel Tom to spill his guts. Paraphrase for understanding. Sometimes you catch a break. Say an employee is upset, walks in, and dumps out her entire path to action in one fell swoop. Boy, am I miffed. You can be so controlling, it drives me crazy. Yesterday I got another one of your follow-up notes. Do you have to monitor me by the hour? I feel like I'm being babysat. She has shared her feeling, miffed, her story. You control me too much because you don't trust me, the violated value and the fact that her feeling is based on either the note you sent her or your history of sending notes to check on how things are going. With this much information on the table, it's best to check to see if you understand what she said. Paraphrase, that is, put in your own words what you think she stated. But don't parrot. Restating exactly what the other person said can be annoying and often sounds phony. Simply take your best guess at what the person just expressed. You're upset because you think I overmanage you? I'm too controlling and send you too many notes. Is that it? 
Paraphrasing serves two functions. First, it shows that you are listening and that you care. This alone often calms the other person down enough to allow a rational conversation. Second, it helps you see what you do and don't understand. No, I don't care about the notes, she says. It bugs me that you give me more notes than anyone else. Do you really think I'm the least competent person here? Ah, so it's an issue of equity or respect. Different core values. You think I give you more notes than others? That I don't respect you? Well, yeah. Yesterday you talked to Ken and then let him go without so much as a single follow-up. But with me... Prime to make it safe. Sometimes it takes quite a bit to encourage other people to talk openly. They figure that speaking their minds is a bad idea. If they express their feelings openly, they're likely to get into trouble. You've invited and mirrored, but so far the other person has remained emotionally charged and mute. What next? Our final tool takes us right into the other person's story. We prime. We add words to the conversation, much like putting water in a pump to get it flowing, hoping the other person will do the same thing. We do this by guessing what the other person may be thinking. Are you upset because I did something unfair? I gave the promotion to Margie, and maybe you think that you're more qualified or that I didn't do a good job of making a choice. Is that it? The second half of this skill lies in how you guess the story. You're trying to make it safe for others to share their thoughts. That means you have to express your best guess in a way that says, Don't worry, I'll be okay with this discussion. I won't become defensive or angry. You do this, of course, by stating the story calmly and matter-of-factly. Fourth, take action. Openly talking about the other person's path puts us in a position to deal calmly with the issues that have surfaced. If we willingly talk about other people's thoughts and feelings without mocking, squelching, or attacking them, they are much more likely to calm down enough to both express their thoughts and listen to ours. Once we've uncovered the story and the action that led to it, we're in a position to deal with the problem itself, and this is what we should do. We're not listening for the sake of listening. Once again, we're learning about how to communicate, in this case, how to listen actively, not as an intellectual exercise, but as a way to get results. Create a safety valve. Before we bring this chapter to a close, let's look at one final issue. You approach your boss with the problem that he is causing, and he immediately becomes aggressive. You silently seethe because you were hoping he would help you resolve the problem, not shoot the messenger. Despite your best efforts to stifle the fuming volcano of hate and loathing that is overtaking your Employee of the Month persona, which just last month won you a free week's dry cleaning at the awards banquet, your boss picks up on your hostile tone and warns you that you're starting to step across the line. You find his remarks duplicitous because his tone is always snippy and insulting, but in a thinly veiled, sarcastic kind of way that he thinks is clever and you think places him in the top five in the pantheon of hypocrites. You're at a crossroads. To paraphrase Woody Allen, one path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, the other to total extinction. 
You can only pray that you have the wisdom to choose correctly. Actually, you have a third choice. You can step back and buy yourself time. You can and should take a strategic delay. You know what? I need to think about this in more detail. I'll get back to you later. And with that short comment, you hot-foot it back to your office. This is not a retreat. It's a strategic delay. This is not silence. You plan on returning. Once you're ensconced in the safety of your office, you take a deep breath, regain control of your emotions, think about a new and better strategy for talking about the problem, and return another hour or day. If your emotions are in control, but you're having trouble coming up with the right words, take a strategic delay. Think about what you'd like to say privately, safely, and slowly, and then return later. Finally, if your emotions are in control, but you're about to lose your temper, also take a strategic delay. Your grandmother was wrong when she counseled you on the eve of your wedding never to go to bed angry. When you're angry, going to bed may be exactly the thing you need to do to dissipate your adrenaline, regain your brain power, and prepare to return to the confrontation. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes.